Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the program where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man personally responsible for getting movie theaters to sell beer, Mr. Ryan Siebold. <laughs> What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? I am doing well, man. I am here to discuss movies with you. One of my favorite things in the world. Gotta have a hell of a movie we're looking at today in Anatomy of a Murder. Why don't you go ahead and drop a description on our audience, sir? Hell yeah, buddy. Google has this described as semi-retired Michigan lawyer Paul Beegler, played by James Stewart, takes the case of Army Lieutenant Mannion, played by Ben Gazzara, who murdered a local innkeeper after his wife, played by Lee Remick, claimed that he raped her. A uh, little bit of serious uh, content here for the podcast. Uh, over the course of an extensive trial, Beegler parries with District Attorney Lodwick, played by Brooks West, and out-of-town prosecutor Claude Dancer, played by George C. Scott, our second George C. Scott movie in a row here, uh, right? to set his client free. But his case rests on the victim's mysterious business partner, who's holding a dark secret. Dun, dun, ba, ba, ba. This was released in 1959, directed by Otto Preminger. Uh, it says so right on my DVD box case. And uh, it was made on a budget of $2 million, brought in a box office of $8 million. So uh, there's a lot of fun facts I won't steal your thunder on. Uh, we're going to get to all that here very shortly. But as always, Jason, I have to ask you, is, what did you think about this movie? Ryan, going to be happy to tell you and everyone. But first, do want to remind our audience, if you haven't yet, please like this video. Go ahead and subscribe to our channel. As well, if you agree or disagree with any aspect of this review, just want to chime in, please, by all means, drop that in the comments. We would love to hear from you. Might even get back to you there. And you can always go to our website as well. Send us some comments there. Check out more of what we have to offer at esotericacinema.com. Now, Ryan, the film opens with a simple but incredibly effective graphic sequence uh, from a gentleman named Saul Bass, who actually has quite a reputation as a graphic designer and He's animator of title sequences over yeah. the years. Done some really popular ones, North by Northwest. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Even Preminger's Psycho. own Man with the Golden Arm, right? Man with Just the Golden Arm, yeah. A lot of stuff there, yeah. And in the case of Anatomy of a Murder, it's this uh, very simple, he, he's kind of known for having these very sort of simple visual motifs motifs, and almost like a minimalist aesthetic. And uh, that's very much the case here where we get a visual of like an almost cardboard cutout of like a, a dead body, almost like a chalk outline. Chalk outline. Yeah. 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 And I was familiar with that more than I was the movie itself uh, before I watched it. <laughs> I'd never seen this before. Um, I don't think that needs to be a cinematic confession. Uh, I think a lot of people probably should see this and haven't. So yeah. I was one of those people. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people that haven't. Yeah. So and in this case, it's kind of, you know, having a unique title sequence like that uh, does tee off the movie, which has a lot of really sort of like 
idiosyncratic characteristics that make it different from most of the other courtroom thrillers, procedural dramas that we've sort of seen over the years, you know? And again, this is sort of married with this very distinctive score from Duke Ellington, who Mm -hmm. I had known by name, but to be completely honest, I mostly knew as the character voiced by Jordan Peele on Big Mouth, right? Like, (laughs) hey, what's going on? Right? Like he does that whole thing. It's very funny. They kind of phased him out over the years because it was kind of like a one note thing. Right. But, um, you know, I had obviously Duke Ellington has this very storied career and is, you know, a celebrated jazz musician, you know, not a super big jazz guy myself, something I appreciate, but never really like got super into. And I think it's one of the most distinctive aspects of this film and something that gives it it's like it's like inextricable from its DNA. You know, it is that that Duke Ellington score like makes this movie part of what it it is, along with a number of these other things that we're going to go into here down the road. It's my understanding real quick about the Duke Ellington thing. Uh, Did you see that this is perhaps the first film score that is uh, that was scored by an African-American that was non-diegetic music? Yeah, absolutely. That, I did see that, that as well. Yeah. I okay. mean, if it's if it's not if it's not the first, it's probably the most like if it didn't invent it, it popularized it type thing. Okay, right? that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Also, just to explain for anybody that's watching, if you're not familiar with what exactly that term is, diegetic, maybe you've heard it around, but you've never really known exactly what it refers to. Uh, it's specific to sound. So diegetic sound is when we hear something that is being reflected on the screen. Right. So what we're talking about here specifically is prior to this movie, uh, African-American music was only portrayed as like a jazz band playing in a seedy nightclub or something like that. So we would hear the music, but we would also see the band playing it because it was supposed to be the band's music as opposed to a score or a soundtrack where the music is being overlaid on top of the visuals and everything else like we're accustomed to and so yes this was at least the first popular mainstream sort of film to feature um a uh an african-american uh band doing the score so yeah because like you'll see like cab calloway in a movie you know and he's doing the thing but he's on screen singing and they're like you know, and they'll bring him out, you yeah. know, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Cam Calloway. And then they bring him out. <laughs> yeah, bah, 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 and then, you know, he does his thing, but then he goes away. And then it's like, and now back to white people music. And then it'll, <laughs> so, you know, this was the first time they actually uh, had that. And so anyway. Yeah. Super cool. Now, as the film begins proper, we see the opening of a wide shot where a man is driving on a desolate street at night. We've got this sort of slinky jazz playing and it kind of sets it up like it's going to be a bit of a traditional noir. But then uh, that quickly proves itself to be something of like a slight red herring uh, because we see that this film is anything. But we've got uh, the gentleman finally arrives at uh, what seems to be a house at first, but is actually also doubles as his law office. And he is introduced to us as Paul Beegler, played by Jimmy Stewart. And, you know, he's a it definitely isn't quite, you know, the shady sort of criminal guy or detective that they set it up to be right. Like he he comes home. He's just been fishing. He drops his fish off in the sink. He likes to play piano. (laughs) Right. Even if it's a little bit uh, unorthodox at the time because he's doing modern jazz. Right. And it's like, well, you never assume 50 or 60 year old Jimmy Stewart to play, you know, modern improvisational jazz. But that's part of (laughs) what his character does. And it's what makes his character interesting, because, you know, I think you'll agree and we'll we'll get to this more. But it's a it's a rather, again, unorthodox character. You know, some of the elements of the performance and the characterization, how everything plays together is definitely unique. And I think it does work. 
Um, but we can, you know, get into that here a little bit more specifically. Now, we do also cut from there to a gentleman who is leaving a bar, looks every bit the classic alcoholic that we've seen throughout film, and he arrives at the office uh, introduced as Jimmy's partner, Parnell McCarthy, who is played by Arthur O'Connell, was actually nominated for supporting actor role, as Jimmy Stewart was for supporting actor that year. And, you know, he quickly shows an affinity for law. They have this reverence for these Supreme Court verdicts. There's also just very quickly, they sort of establish themselves as having this sort of like sweet, like older guy relationship, right? Where they just right. like dig each other. And he's like, dude, what do you, you know, I think he asks Jimmy Stewart's character, Paul, at one point, like, what are you going to do with your life? And he's like, well, if I just sat around, you know, playing jazz and uh, drinking bourbon and reviewing law with my good friend Parnell, that would be quite all right with me and Parnell's like ah shit yeah, you yeah I guess yeah, they're well, on you're easy a good street, guy man. you're all yeah. right yeah no I was so, I was uh, as I was watching this movie I was like hey it's kind of like you and I if we practice law exactly. you know <laughs> I had a note of that very same thing it's just like instead of uh, that it's uh you know beer and uh cinema but you know yeah. pretty much the same kind of thing just two buddies doing what we want to do. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. By the way, real quick, fucking, uh, did you happen to catch Blake and you miss it shot of how many fucking fish Jimmy Stewart yeah. has in his fridge? What's he going to do with all that fish? It's loaded to the gills, pun intended, with fish. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, and I think that's probably one of those screenplay touches that's supposed to be like reflective of character, right? Like he's somebody okay. who like, I think he's in it for the sport. Right? right. And that and we see that in the film. Right. Like you could even argue. I have a note here. It's like, why does this dude even take this case before all is said and done? Right. <laughs> right. Like, uh, right. And, and the answer is probably for the sporting thrill of it. And that's probably exactly why he's fishing. He's like, well, the fun is catching the fish. I don't give a shit what to do with it afterwards. Right. So <laughs> now. And then, of course, we do have his you know assistant who calls attention to it. Right. Uh, sure. Uh, if you catch one more fish, blah, 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 whatever. So. But, uh, you know, right off the bat, I will say, Ryan, that, you know, we're introduced to this very sort of unique aesthetic that comprises this film's DNA. You know, we've got this marriage of very classical actors from Jimmy Stewart, George C. Scott. People may not know, but Lee Remick and Ben Gazzara are actually both from the actor's studio and trained there together. Okay. And so they actually... Preminger not being much of an actor's director that we'll get into a bit down the road. They actually mm -hmm. brought a lot of those characterizations and those moments and backstory between the two of them to life. So, you know, we get all of this traditional acting, but it's in this very sort of modern improvisational jazz score. Okay. And at the time, you know, this is also sort of very edgy in terms of its language. You know, it's very coarse and frank description of sexual assaults. You know, this is 1959 when this film is released. Right. I I, and so we're still, uh, you know, sort of feeling the effects of the Hayes Code that hasn't quite washed away quite yet. And so it was very controversial. Like the censors really pushed back on Preminger for a lot of this language. And as a matter of fact, very interestingly, you may have seen that this was the first film that was released or I'm sorry, his earlier film, um, the blue moon, uh, was like the first film released without the uh, producer's guild seal of approval. And so yes. it was basically like he had to go get his own distribution and everything because they couldn't secure traditional yeah, he went independent. Broke yeah. away from 20th century. He didn't like the studio system anyway. <laughs> he didn't. He, he seems like that kind of dude. We'll get into that in a, in a second, unless you're going to yeah. go down the road now. But yeah, definitely. <laughs> he 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 danced to the beat of his own drum for real. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the 
things I think is just most interesting uh, about this film overall is just like it's a very unique sort of mise en scene, right? Sure. And again, just to make sure that, you know, anybody who is watching or listening to this may not know exactly what that term is. It's really just the aggregate collection of all the different elements coming together and what that puts on screen, right? So it's not any one thing. It's the camera work. It's the angles. It's the lighting of the camera. It's the sound. It's the rhythm of the dialogue, right? Literally just everything that makes up the film collectively, we call mise-en-scene. And again, this film has really unique, almost, you could argue, disparate elements that are brought together and I think it's done in a very organic way, but I wonder if it's the same to you. Did you did you feel like, you know, even though a lot of these elements are very idiosyncratic, it did end up working, um, you know, having a jazz soundtrack on top of like a courtroom drama and thriller. And yes. then specifically, if it did work, like what type of experience did it lend to? Like what was sort of like your feelings and thoughts and experiences watching Anatomy of a Murder with all this unique elements coming together? Okay, a um, couple things. Uh, high level, um, you know, because we're going to go kind of scene by scene and break it down a little bit here as we go through this review uh, or and discussion. But for starters, um, anyone who's a fan of the show or has been watching this for a little while knows that uh, I'm a fan of brevity. I like a short film. <laughs> so when I saw this was two hours and 40 minutes, um, you know, uh, as we announced the film uh, in the last full-length episode for Dr. Strangelove, uh, I shit my britches a little bit. And I'm here to tell you, <laughs> this was a two-hour and 40-minute movie that felt like an hour and a half. I have no yeah, idea where the 100%. time went. I think the score had a lot to do with that. And... And just Jimmy Stewart being so smooth and captivating, you know, he was the previous generation's Tom Hanks. Um, even though on a previous episode you said I'm the Tom Hanks of my generation, he was the Tom Hanks <laughs> of his generation. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. You guys are different generations. <laughs> I'm not aging you that much, sir. Right, right. So he's, uh, you know, he's a lovable, fun-loving dude. Um, we're moving right through. Uh, every scene kind of leads to the next very naturally. The performances are gripping. By the time George C. Scott's there, it is fucking on. And yeah. you're like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Because admittedly, the first part of this movie does start out a little slow. And like you said, like, you got Jimmy Stewart kind of just like making fishing lures. And he's like kind of, uh, you know, dawdling along. And then even as it starts to get into uh, Ben Gazzara being introduced, I mean, they're introducing some heavy concepts. So I thought yeah. that was really interesting, too. Again, trying to keep this very high level. You're sure. asking me my resp direct response to the film. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was very interesting how heavy the subject matter is. And I kind of hit on this yeah. when I was reading the... Uh, the, the Google, uh, you know, summary at the top of the show, but, and I kind of chuckled and I didn't mean to, but it, it is funny how um, easily, especially for its time, you, you touched on this a minute ago, like how heavy handed, even just using certain words were like rib yeah. and, mm -hmm. you know, sperm and, you know, it, it's very, very heavy. And yet the tone of the film uh, quite often and murder for Christ's sake and um, yeah. cold blooded murder. And, and the tone of the film is just kind of zippy. And again, a lot of that has to do with mm -hmm. a Jimmy Stewart and B the jazz score from Duke Ellington. Um, and just everybody seems kind of like footloose and fancy free. Um, even Lee Remick, who, you know, was the woman um, in question who was raped. Uh, and so, you know, she has a black eye for the first half of the movie that she covers up with glasses. Just everybody's just 
chilling. Like it was just no, you know, yeah, whatever. Dude's dead. Chicks rape. Fucking black eye. You know, but but I'm playing some piano. Gonna pour whiskey. Make some fishing lures. So, um, I thought that, you know, we could have got bogged down. I think if that was made today what you'd see is almost like, I kept thinking of, um, you know, legal dramas that we have, like uh, Francis Ford Coppola's The Rainmaker um, or A Few Good Men, um, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, yeah. this would uh, kind of fall into that category and have a completely different tone, um, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, we even get our You Can't Handle the Truth moment at the end with uh, George C. Scott. We'll get into that later. But uh, yeah, there's, uh, you know, a huge, you know, uh, mic drop moment and all of that. So it's, it's got those same beats narratively, but it just handled differently. And maybe that is just because that's all you could do in 1959, because as it was like taking the conversation full circle uh, a little bit, Otto Preminger got in trouble for, for even this. So I guess maybe he had to kind of like, you know, lighten the load a little bit uh, or lighten the mood a little bit. Um, so anyway, uh, but high level, I really, uh, enjoyed this movie. Um, it moved right along. I thought the performances were gripping. The soundtrack was great. I thought everything gelled perfectly. Um, I, I think the only thing that, you know, was a little odd to me is just how lighthearted some of these, uh, subjects were, were handled. But again, I think that was probably due to the times and I'll comment a little bit more on that later as we get into it narratively. Well, and the one thing that I would like to say about that is that I believe, it's by design. So uh, you probably did a little bit of research on Preminger himself enough to know. And for anybody watching that doesn't know. So this is a guy that I knew nothing about coming into this film. I've seen this film once before three years ago or so, let's say. And it's the only Otto Preminger film that I've seen. But Same. I know him by name, right? Like he's got a reputation. He was big enough that he can put he has his names on his movies. Like you're saying, this is an Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder on the box, right. on the marketing materials. Right. Like they were saying this, he, was, he was as famous as Hitchcock at the time. Yeah, exactly. I, I did like not he was realize a dude that. who sold tickets. And I didn't yeah. realize that either. You know, so it is very interesting to look at. This because he was himself. So his father was actually the AG uh, for the nation of Austria. Right. So his family was in very high esteem. He grew up very wealthy. He was always given the finer things in life, uh, very well educated. But, you know, even when he showed an interest in theater when he was younger, his father being such a storied uh, lawyer uh, for the state, said he should not go into theater, right? Like, it's not practical. You should go into law. And so Preminger actually went and got his law degree and then was like, yeah, you know, I still want to do theater, but I got the law degree and, you know, we got money so I can just bounce around wherever I like, right? So he ended up getting into movies, which obviously worked out very well for him. He did some stuff back home in Hungary, but it wasn't until he got the offer to come. I believe it was Fox maybe that brought him over, but one of the studios offered him Yeah, it was 20th Century Fox. They were actually just getting, um, they they were just forming. And, uh, you know, the Zanuck family and all of that were putting it all together. And they Mm. found, they went over to Europe to go scout for talent uh, because there was a lot going on over there uh, cinema wise. And so they found him and, um, and, and poached him. Anyway, carry on. Nice. Yeah. Interesting. And so and so what you've got is you've got a courtroom thriller that's being helmed by a lawyer. Right. And so I think that what's interesting about that is 
I think sort of what you're picking up on, Ryan, is the fact that this film is handled more like an it's handled more like from the lawyer's point of view sure. than it is from like the victim's point of view or interestingly enough as well, the jury's point of view. The one thing that I didn't even realize as I was watching and then thought about it afterwards is like we never really get introduced to anybody on the jury. They're really not even given very much screen time, a couple shots in the background. Right. And so what does that what does that tell us? This film is about the lawyers. It's about the examination of crafting a defense and how that interacts with the prosecution. Like it's about the creation of a defense and putting together a defense and how you have to organically introduce different elements and play this game and everything that goes along with that. And I think that's part of what makes this so unique is because as a lawyer and as somebody who seems like he maybe wasn't the most emotionally effusive dude, Otto Preminger, that is. <laughs> you don't right? say. He looks like a Bond villain. <laughs> yeah. He talks very He looks like Dr. No. Very, Put a monocle yeah. on that dude and he's like Dr. Yeah. He doesn't seem like he's like the guy you go to when like your girlfriend dumped you and you just need like a solid pick me up. Right. And be like, oh, yeah, no, that's totally your fault. What'd you do? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah. So I think that that's kind of what we're picking up on is, you know, the there's no there's no swelling of strings. There's no you know, even the outbursts are kind of just uh, given their time and. They are what they are and we move along. We don't get these dramatic push-ins as Ben Gazzara like stands up from his, you know, chair and makes an right. outburst. Like everything is sort of just presented very objectively, the way that a defense, a criminal defense would have to be, right? And I think that's what's mm -hmm. so interesting about that is the filmmaking style reflects the story being told the way that some of like cinema's great films do, you know? And that's, that's what interesting. Really works for me about this. I hadn't thought of it that way. That this is like it's just cut and dry the way a lawyer would have to look at it. Like these are the facts, just yeah, the facts, man. Yeah. yeah. We're not, we're not getting emotional here. Hey, 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 hold on. There's no, there's no place for emotion. This is logic. Right. This is reason. This is fact. This is truth. This is what is right and wrong within the confines of the law, not based on human morality. So we're going to examine it as such. And then kind of like to even drive your point home even further, um, even in moments of temptation, it's almost like Otto Preminger is showing you the magic trick too. I hadn't thought of this until right this moment when you're when you're explaining it this way. And, and uh, but Lee Remick's character, um, the, the the woman um, Mannion's wife, uh, yeah, who Laura. was raped and and all of that, um, you know, she, for lack of a better term, seems to be coming on to Jimmy Stewart at various times throughout sure. the film and is yeah. acting very friendly or open in certain ways. And Jimmy Stewart will rein her back in and say, you know, like that's. That, you know, uh, pardon my, me, ma'am, but, you know, th I'm here to do a job and blah, blah, blah. And it's almost like a wink and a nod to the audience. Like, you know, we're going to bring, you know, this is just the facts. Like, we're not going to, we're going to excuse the fluff and the emotion and the lust and the whatever might have, like, that doesn't matter on, in a legal case. So, you know, Jimmy yeah. kind of reigns her back in, but also kind of reigns us back in as an audience as well. Definitely. Yeah. You know, if this was a more traditional Hollywood production, right, with more, uh, you know, leading man and woman uh, actors and actresses, then, yeah, they would absolutely turn that into a thing where like the lawyer and the girl or, you know, ha having a will they won't they type of thing. Right. And that kind of carries throughout the film. And like, you know, they're probably going to graze each other's hands at the bar and you're going to again, just the whole will they won't they and like. Preminger through Jimmy Stewart is basically like, nah, dude, we're fucking putting a stop to that right now. That ain't Correct. going down. Yeah. Not going to be a thing like kibosh on it 
keeping it about the facts. Right. Yeah. So it's very cool the way that the film does that and the way that the structure and the execution reflects that. Now, when we go back to the film narratively, uh, Paul receives a call from a woman and she's about to uh, divorce her husband. So she says partner listens, tells uh, the partner Parnell that is listens. He's sort of next to him on the phone and he tells Paul to take the case. So. Paul does consider taking the case the next morning. He meets the wife and the husband, and the soldier is in jail, the husband. He is Fred Mannion, played by Ben Gazzara. His wife is there as well. To your point, she has a black eye that she is hiding behind sunglasses. This is Laura Mannion, played by Lee Remick. And Fred is in jail for supposedly murdering the man who allegedly raped Laura. And this is a gentleman by the name of Barney Quill, who is the owner of an inn and bar. And Fred actually never saw this happen, but he trusted his wife's story and then in a fit of rage went and murdered him in cold blood. Now, Ryan, without a doubt, like I said, you know, we've talked we talked about this just a minute ago. The most distinctive element of this film, arguably, is that Duke Ellington jazz score. Now, Mm -hmm. it's kind of funny, right, because later on. You know, jazz, when I was a kid and probably when you were a kid, I knew jazz is like smooth jazz, right? Because like, that's what my mom listened to. Like out <laughs> here in LA, I yeah. forget if they were national, but we had like uh, Coast 103.5 and like sure. 94.7 The Wave, right? And it was like a lot of like Charday and like Sa- Kenny G and saxophone Kenny music, G, yeah. right? You know, stuff like that. Uh, this is definitely <laughs> not that type of jazz, right? This is no. that like swinging, like free form um you know it's uh, uh largely improvisational when it's not obviously being like written for a score the way that this is but yeah. you know traditionally it's always been that sort of like swanky you know sort of club noir film and i i really appreciate the way that this film does kind of have that element but then also does raise it to a more vibrant, lively sort of uh, composition, right? Each mm-hmm. of the instruments are sort of off doing their own thing and do some really unique things while all of that working together. And so, you know, to me, I, I was very impressed by it. It, it keeps the film moving along. I uh, wondered what your reaction was to the score. Yeah, absolutely. It um, it, it, it was like Miles Davis meets... Um, the opening to Police Squad, uh, the Naked Gun movies. So had a little bit of uh, you know a little dragnet. You know it was kind of because this is 1959, yeah. so the jazz uh, scene at this point. You know, um, I, again, I think we're kind of moving out of um, you know that Cab Calloway, Minnie the Moocher, you know all of that. Um, and moving into that Miles Davis, you know, kind of, and so I think, yeah, I, I mean, it totally worked for me. And then there was even a scene where uh, Duke, Duke Ellington was in, in the movie, um, you know, playing jazz yeah. in the bar and stuff yeah, live. That was nice. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but it was controversial that Jimmy Stewart was actually sitting, uh, with a man of color to play music together at the same piano, yeah. uh, at that time, this is pre-civil rights. So, man, there was a lot going on at this time in 1959. I know we're going to, sure. t- you know, hit on some of these moments. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you got the, um, the the Hayes Code, like you were saying. It's McCarthy era. Uh, we're going to talk about the judge uh, in this movie being the lawyer that fought McCarthy. Um, and then, of course, you know, Duke Ellington and, and being, um, you know, a, a black man, uh, you know, doing the score for this movie and then being in the movie and sitting down with a white man and blah, blah, blah. It's like. So many things that you just take for granted, and it wasn't yeah, that long yeah. ago. 
Uh, but it's crazy how like an auto preminger to do these things and kind of get his way, um, you know, for were many of the reasons he had to go independent and, and break away from the studio system and kind of throw the yeah. finger to, to Fox. And it wasn't even Fox's deal. They just didn't want to be on the hook. Uh, to be blamed for all of this. They don't want to be caught in the liability, you know, crossfire. So he's like, fuck it, I'll do it. You know, I'll do it myself. So Thanos <laughs> style. So um, anyway, yeah, I, I thought that the, uh, the score was tremendous. I thought that it had a lot to do with, uh, because, you know, there's some intense stuff in this movie, um, you know, yeah, subject definitely. matter. Uh, I don't mean to make light of the score and say that it was so lighthearted, but it definitely took the edge off. And, uh, you know, just kind of like, and it blended the scenes together really well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it just wasn't, it never felt like your cut and dry state of the art score that you would expect for a film like this. And I think one of the interesting things to point out as well is that, you know, this movie, if you look at it, it got eight Oscar nominations. None of them yeah. were for the music. Not not a, not a single nomination for any sort of music. And that was pretty nuts crazy. to me. Yeah. yeah, golden. Same thing with the Golden Globes or anything. But what it did win is it won three Grammys. It was nominated for three Grammys and it won all three Grammys, one of which was like best theme for a film, you know, best like recorded swing song or jazz song or something like that. So, yeah, generally, you know, not keen to give the Grammys too much credit. But in this case, they actually did something right. So, uh, hey. hey, yeah, give, give, him, give, give him a dub on this one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, if definitely go back and uh, look up some some Duke Ellington and Count Basie and stuff like that. It's it's some fun shit. I like getting yeah. into all that stuff. Yeah, it's uh, there's also you know, uh, so Brian and I both watched the Criterion disc that we have back at home, and one thing I will say is that you know. I can't speak music the way that I can film, right? Uh, but there's a really interesting feature with a, with a music critic on there who goes into, like, uh, really good detail on some of the musical stuff that they're doing. You know, he talks about, like, glissandos and this and that. And if that means something to you, then you're definitely going to dig this feature, right? I just learned what it was by watching this, and a lot of the other stuff went over my head. But there yeah. is a lot of interesting stuff that's really going on with this score where if you're a little bit more... If you can speak music a little bit more, you can really do some digging and find some very interesting things that Ellington's bringing to the table. So one of the interesting things here about the whole score and everything is that Preminger wanted this to be sort of like a uniquely American film. OK, well, there's sort of two things about American culture specifically at the time that he's got a great reverence for at this point. One is our First Amendment freedom of speech protections. And the second is the American justice system which, you know, may be flawed, but is the best and most fair system that uh, we have out there. A lot of people would agree with that. Preminger definitely agreed with that as well. And I'll also tell a funny story about how that contrasts Russia's view of justice in just a minute. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the reason that Preminger chose Duke Ellington to do this is he wanted it again to be a, a uniquely American film and knew jazz to be a uniquely American art form at the time. And so he was like, who's the foremost American jazz musician out there? Oh, it's this guy, Duke Ellington. Cool. Let's get him over here and let's have him do this film. But the funny thing is that Duke Ellington's style of jazz was still very much an outsider style of jazz at the time. It had not been accepted by the mainstream to any sort of degree. And so it's kind of funny because there's this sort of idea that, you know, it was this 
very important moment that a black musician was able to, you know, get a job scoring a mainstream Hollywood film. And a lot of it just could have been from a simple misunderstanding from the director and producer about what music we liked. I just think that's hysterical. He's like, oh, yeah, no, they like jazz. And this Duke Ellington guy's a jazz guy. So go ahead and hire him, like, with no understanding of what that meant and why that was important and how it actually was not at all customary, right? So sure. if he sort of knew more about uh, American culture, you could argue that he could have made a completely different decision, which would have very much affected the DNA of this film. So that's kind of what's really interesting about Duke Ellington's involvement with this uh, project. It's like the whole uh, Marty McFly thing, you know, where he's like, I guess you all aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are yeah. going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so. just a little, um, uh, you kind of put a sentence setting into this whole thing, but this is the exact same year, too, that Miles Davis released Kind of Blue, which is my favorite jazz album. Oh, nice. Uh, and it's fantastic. Awesome. So, you know, you're kind of getting there into that era. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't quite. Miles Davis style. It's got a little more swank count Basie, you know, Frank Sinatra style stuff to it. It's, it's got a little pep in its step, but, uh, but yeah, it, it was definitely experimental and, and to score a whole film that way, you know, instead of like you said earlier, um, you know, to make it more diegetic and, and have it in the film as a performance. Um, that was always different, uh, where you'd cut to a nightclub and then that was happening. Um, we even saw some of that in uh, sweet smell of success where they had diegetic music because the, the whole thing revolved around a jazz singer yeah. and those, uh, marijuana cigarettes. So, <laughs> yeah, not the uh, not the only comparison we will make to that film before this is over. Okay, by the way, fair. So now, uh, narratively, by the way, I, I, we there's this very brief moment, and I'm sure it meant nothing at the time, but it's just so hysterical to me, and I'm sure you clocked it too. Which is like right after this, narratively, uh, they're about to meet with Laura, uh, so that. Paul can kind of get a sense of who she is. But right before that, they decide to stop off for a quick beer and hard boiled egg at like a local cafe. And I just thought that was like the most hysterical thing in the world because I miss that completely. in 1959, I guess that was a thing that you and your homeboy did is like, oh, we got to think this out. Let's go down and grab a beer and a hard boiled <laughs> egg. And so they're sitting there just like, what are we going to do about this? And they're cracking a hard boiled egg and throwing salt and pepper and like munching. And like, this is like 50, 60 years later or whatever. Like it, 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 this is not something people do, but I bet it was like just perfectly commonplace at the time. Probably. And I just loved that. I thought it was so hysterical. So I mean, you didn't really have a lot of processed foods and prepackaged foods probably back then. Like you do now. It's not like you, you know, so yeah. unless yeah, you want no. like a full steak or, you know, <laughs> a burger or something, you know, or a, Stack of you pancakes. imagine though, like having like uh, like the 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 egg cart, like, hard boiled eggs. Get your hard boiled <laughs> eggs. <laughs> I just, I mean, that's probably a thing somewhere. Someone's watching I mean, and they're like, "Yeah, dude, what's the big deal? Hard boiled." You eggs. You see, they're like delicious. pickled eggs in like a jar sometimes in a bar, <laughs> nobody or eats like those. <laughs> I know nobody eats those. It was even commented on um, uh, the cabin in the woods or whatever uh, that we. That we covered that. Oh, um, fucking the, the two dudes that Dale and Tucker, um, oh, against yeah, yeah, yeah. evil man, that movie sucked. Um, yeah, they went into a country <laughs> wow, we store just and they had like the jar of pickled people, eggs. Dude. Remember how much everyone loves that movie and they hate that we hate it and we get all that shit. 
Just that hey, one here's the thing, alone. Jason. Like, we're making all new enemies right now. We're on YouTube. We made all the enemies we could on in audio format, but we're in HD video. So come at me. We're gonna make some video enemies now. Now you know my face. Come find me. By the way, are you watching? Did you love Tucker and Dale? Do you want to talk shit to us about Tucker that? Tucker and Dale Drop versus it in the evil. Comments. Hot garbage. Yeah, come and get me. <laughs> So yeah, but anyway, so after after a quick beer and a hard boiled egg, hey, uh, Paul does meet with Laura. You know, asks about the night of assault, and yeah, very quickly we sort of see that she's not a hundred percent on the up and up. Right? She's sort of elusive about what happened. She's oddly flirtatious with Paul. Very sort of inconsistent with how she's acting, and she even calls out Paul's obvious attraction. Is kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm used to it. Guys like me, I'm super hot and flirty and whatever, blah blah blah. So. And this actually brings up like one very sort of interesting uh, aspect of the film, which is that at no point through the entire movie do we genuinely believe that Laura and Fred are, are innocent and that there's like not something weird and, and more to this story that happened. Right. Like we kind of know that like he wasn't really insane and we kind of know that like Paul's kind of trying to lead him on and being like, yeah, you know, if you do this, we can kind of get you off. And again, like Paul, we sort of know that Paul's not going to get paid by these guys before the end of it. And so it's like, why is he doing this? And then again, it's just really for the sporting thrill of it all. Uh, but sure. it never really treats it like he it's tells sort of him thrilling, he's broke. You know? So, yeah, he says, exactly. I've got no he's money like, oh, to my get name. I'm getting a paycheck on Friday, but I got an IOU. I'll put something on it, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. He's also like, oh, yeah, I owe you three thousand dollars. I get one hundred forty bucks on Friday. Happy to give it to you. Like, you're still a yeah. ways off, bro. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of, again, get that there, there's more to this story. There's more to this relationship. Uh, again, we can touch on that in a moment. There's a lot of stuff that the two of them brought to the table through that performance and added to the screenplay that wasn't really there. But when we get back to the narrative, you know, Paul does want his partner Parnell on the case, but he, you know, he needs him sober. Uh, this guy's been a nasty alcoholic for a while. Parnell's not 100% sure he can do it, but he's going to think about it, might give it the old college try. And that's when Paul meets with Barney to discuss his state of mind. Or I'm sorry, not Barney, but Fred, excuse me, uh, to discuss his state of mind about what he might have been uh, thinking when he did murder Barney and is basically telling him like, you know, he's like, well, you know, Fred's like, well, he murdered my wife. So he had it coming. And and Paul has to be like, not in the court of law. That's not an acceptable uh, line of defense. You know, you're not going to get off that way. And he's like, well, maybe I was kind of crazy. And he's like, oh, yeah, maybe you were. That might be a little bit different. Kind of walks sure. away and lets him go. And so that's when he agrees to take on the case. And this leads into what I think is an interesting discussion about acting and characterization, Ryan. So in a film with a lot to offer, uh, I think the acting is is definitely some of the strongest aspect of this film, right? From oh, sure. Jimmy Stewart, George C. Scott, Lee Remick. Like, it's just it's it's awesome performances, uh, weighty performances across the board, breezy where they're supposed to be breezy, intense where they're supposed to be intense. I would say that there's probably like not a false performance in the bunch. So what did you think about the entire ensemble as well as did any individual performances stand out to you? Dude, these guys are titans. Yeah, uh, this is so this is the the earliest work of Ben Gazzara I have seen. Um, this is the third Ben Gazzara film that we've covered on this show. Uh, the other know, two being right? Buffalo 66 and Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, you've also got everything from Big Lebowski to... So, yeah, yeah. I mean, Ben Gazzara was... He was a smooth 
criminal, quite literally, in this yeah, film. Definitely. Um, he had a, a crocodile smile, you know, where you just, you knew he was kind of slimy, you know? Uh, he was up to Couldn't something. Couldn't put your finger on why, but you knew it. George C. Scott, um, so, uh, you know, we just finished covering Dr. Strangelove, and we talked ad nauseum in that episode about how out of character uh, that performance was for him. And I don't know that I'd ever really seen a true to life George C. Scott film. And so then I get to watch this and then I get to see exactly what they were talking about because this was like way more intense, obviously (laughs) than strange love. And (laughs) like to see, like to go from that, it was weird getting introduced to it. Flip flop, right? Because most people would have known this. Yeah. You were introduced to the exception performance. Right. Instead of like knowing that to be atypical for him. Yeah. Yeah. Very strange. So, um, strange love even. (laughs) Right. Ah, right. Yeah. Ah. Um, so real quick, um, to put it even in an even greater context, he's only two movies removed from this in Strange Love. So he did this, mm-hmm. he did The Hustler, and then he did um uh, the list of Adrian Messenger, I think it's called, by John Houston, that stars Never everybody from that film. Dude, it's it's we have to put that on our list. No yeah. pun intended. Um it stars Kirk Douglas, Frank Sinatra. Um, hold on, I got it right. Um, Robert Mitchum, Tony oh, wow. Curtis, Burt Lancaster, and Bert George Lancaster. C. Scott. <laughs> and George <laughs> C. Scott. So yeah, way. I mean, it's a laundry list wow. of a cast list. Um, oh my and directed God, by John like, Houston. So yeah. A, can you be... imagine the alcohol budget on that movie? And then <laughs> B, like, did you have to like keep them all in separate rooms and oh, like shoot man. individually? Like, how did they not all just like start swinging at each other? Yeah, half an I hour no being around each other. Yeah. Like six, like just of the biggest alpha dudes. Like I control this set. No, I control this set. <laughs> Um, George C. Scott versus Burt Lancaster. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, I mean, uh, someone got pregnant uh, when they were shooting that. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Frank Sinatra is there, you know, a young boyish 1959 Frank Sinatra. So, yeah. Um, you know, he was he was the one getting tail like George C. Scott and Burt Lancaster were like puffing each other's chest. And then like, yeah, he was just like sneaking cigars. off with their girl behind like, oh, you guys go ahead. I'm just going to go here. <laughs> I mean, Kirk Douglas is there. <laughs> Tony Curtis is and Kirk Douglas there. fresh off of sport. You know, actually, I think that that would have been like right in, in time with Spartacus. So. Yeah. Anyways, um, so George C. Scott makes this, makes Hustler, makes that movie, and then goes right into Doctor Strange Love. So that's pretty bananas when you look at the chronology of all of it. Um, but yeah, man, the performances were because again, two hour and forty minutes. So and you're not really going anywhere. Um, you're yeah. in. You know, it's mostly interiors. Um, and so obviously. This movie is a masterclass in pacing because it slowly ramps up uh, to a fever pitch by the end. Um, you know, by the, the the first act is very lighthearted and easygoing considering the subject matter. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, and then, you know, uh, but uh, by the time George C. Scott gets it, got introduced, that's when I was locked in. Like, because w- at that point, it's him versus Jimmy Stewart, which is just two Hollywood titans on screen together going at it. Sure, yeah. Um, and 
Uh, that's when all the legal stuff starts happening. We're in the court, we're interviewing people, like the dominoes start to fall real quick um, towards the, not, I mean, I say real quick, it's a three hour movie, but um, <laughs> the, the pacing amps up, I should say, versus yeah. Jimmy Stewart, you know, boyishly making fishing lures and all of that. And like so much of the legalese gets, you know, brushed over really quickly in the beginning. And then we kind of, they're, they're just like planting, you know, breadcrumbs because there's even a scene when he first introduces uh, or goes to interview Ben Gazzara's character, Fred, um, in jail. And he goes in there. He's like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a talking to with this boy. And then he goes in there and he's like talking to Ben Gazzara. And, and then he's like, well. Uh, uh, hold, you, on, hold, you, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Can you no, do that no, again? Uh, you're Fred. You, you, have any, well, you have any kids? And then Ben's like, no, I don't suppose I have any kids. And then he's, and then he's like, well. That about does it for today. I think I'll go get some lunch. And then he goes in off to the diner. And like, I think that's when he got the, the hard boiled egg and the beer. So that's like he good just Jimmy like, Stewart, man. Look at you, dude. You got fucking yeah. Owen Wilson. You got Jimmy Stewart. You got hey, Werner Herzog. Like hire this man for your party. When you, when you watch a three hour Jimmy Stewart movie, you don't. Yeah. You walk away with a few takes. <laughs> well, 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 now, Ryan, that's a point. Yeah. See, I can't do it. That's that's mine. It's it's not good. Like, it's not. Well, I don't know what I'm doing, Ryan. I am. Mine's See, not that's good not either. good. No, yours but, is great, dude. I love it. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, yeah, I, I thought the performances were spot on, but the, it's not even the performances. It's the interaction, the chemistry that these actors have together. Now, I, I will add that Otto Preminger, um, again, if I'm stealing something off of your notes, I apologize, uh, but... Otto Preminger wanted to go shoot this on location in the Upper Peninsula. We haven't even mentioned yeah. yet that this was written by John Volker, who was mm-hmm. a um, an attorney up in uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He was uh, Jimmy Stewart's character. It's who Jimmy Stewart is in this movie. And so yeah. he made fishing lures just like that. Um, and then the, uh, so Preminger wanted to go make this authentic as fuck. He didn't want to involve the studio. He's shooting all of this independent, remember. So he's not even a part of the studio system apart from distribution. So mm-hmm. um, he goes up and shoots us up there in the exact courtroom um, that the, the trial takes place. You can go see it to this very day. He shoots it in John Volker's house. That's where Jimmy Stewart resides. And that's where his little office is and all of that with the fridge. That's actually John Volker's house. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh, he felt that if he shot it on location, this is the point I'm getting at, that it would bring together the chemistry of the talent, that they're not just on a Hollywood backlot, I'll be yeah. in my trailer kind of thing. They're all eating at the local restaurant, hard-boiled eggs and beer, apparently, and, um, you know, <laughs> going out at night. And, you know, uh, I guess this wasn't done as often back then because they're just coming out of that studio system as we move into the 1960s, which was very much more free of that. And you get into the auteur movement um, in the late sixties, as you move into the seventies with people like Coppola and Scorsese and all of that, you get sure. mean streets and, you know, Godfather and all these things that were that could be shot on location. So, um, you know, uh, I, I thought that, you know, the chemistry between some of these Titans of Hollywood, uh, and New York were, was really amazing to see Jimmy Stewart on the screen combating George C. Scott. It was like, Oh shit. Like there were moments I was like, dude, is is George going to swing on Jimmy? Like, I think they're going <laughs> to, there's no way George C. Scott's going to like settle for this. So anyways, I, yeah. I really enjoyed this movie a lot. How about you? Yeah, definitely. And so I think one of the really interesting characterizations for me was Jimmy Stewart's Paul character, the entire cast crush, as I mentioned, Yeah. but I'm not overly familiar with a lot of Jimmy Stewart films, 
but I'm very familiar with his reputation, right? Like you said, his he he's his generation's Tom Hanks. Everybody loves him. He's always the nice guy. He's always the objectively pure and good guy. And I mm-hmm. think that it's interesting to see him play not necessarily like he's definitely not immoral or anything like that, but he's not a traditional good guy the way that a lot of these sort of like justice lawyers are presented in films historically, you know? If you go back to like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, right? Like he's just like a bang up dude. He's doing it for the right reasons. And here, like we don't again, we don't really know why he's doing it until by the end of the film, we sort of see that like, oh, it's just for the sport and thrill of it all. And even down to the standpoint that like we get the sense that Paul kind of knows that. Fred did something or that, you know, the story isn't what it is. And he never really addresses that. Right. It's almost like he just sort of is one of those guys that like wants to stick it to the state. Right. And just get see if he can get his guy off just because uh, thumb his nose at authority or something like that. But he's not like, oh, this is an innocent man. We've got to get him off. I'm going to stake you know, every dollar that I have and sacrifice all this to get this pure and righteous dude, you know, who was uh, incorrectly charged with this, that, the other off. Right. It's not like a John Grisham novel like that or something like no, that. Right. Like, everybody's very ambiguous. Uh, the so interestingly enough. Uh, so previously I had mentioned about how this the American justice system differs from Russia's and how this film uh, parlays that. So when Preminger was taking a round of this film, he was trying to shop it to Russia and they didn't have a problem with it per se, but they were like, no Russian is going to appreciate this film because (laughs) very early on, it's very clear that Fred is guilty and the Russian people and the Russian government couldn't understand why the American justice system would put him on trial and not just execute him immediately because he's clearly guilty just based on his behavior. (laughs) That's the very big difference between American justice and and Russian justice, (laughs) at least circa 1959. I don't know how much has changed over the years, right? So, but yeah, they were just like, the guy's clearly guilty. Why don't you just put a bullet in his head? I don't understand. It's like, well, we don't really do that thing. It's like, Americans, whatever. (laughs) Right? So, and again, you know, he knows he's not getting paid and he's just... He's this tall Midwestern guy. He's in Michigan who loves to fish, but also plays swanky, you know, improvisational jazz. And so he doesn't care about the money. His secretary comes out and says, I haven't been paid. You know, my last check didn't clear, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, he sloughs it off. He just wants to he's he's a lawyer in the upper peninsula of Michigan, which, again, doing a little research on the area that it was shot in is very desolate. It's very small town to this day. I can only imagine what it was like in 1959. But, um, you know, it's golly gee shucks, you know, everybody's very innocent and just they're up there for a reason. It's very small town. And so um, he's not, you know, some big New York lawyer. You know, we're going to do the fight the system. He just wants to go fishing and make his lures and this and that. And he kind of like you said, just takes this for sport. In fact, he has to be coaxed by his um, partner, his legal partner to take the case. He gets a phone call, knows nothing about it. It's all over the papers. So that also kind of informs his character a little bit as well. The fact that he is so aloof that he is as like the main lawyer in town doesn't know that there's like a, been a murder by an army, you know, guy that's like in all the headlines. He just, yeah. because he's been out in the woods hunting and fishing. <laughs> and so 
Um, he's separated even in like the legal news of like any lawyer worth their salt. You would think in a, in a town that small would have caught wind of that, like the day it happened. I mean, like, oh shit. And an ambulance chased their way down to the police station. But, um, meanwhile, his legal partner is like, is that so-and-so, you know, you need to take this case. And he's like, well, why? And then, you know, he's got to go do it. So, um, uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's, he's not, not motivated by finances or or any of that. I don't even know correct. that he's motivated by the common good. I think that he's just motivated by, um, you know, winning, winning purely selfish case. interest. No, yeah. like he's kind of showed like he doesn't have a family. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have kids. Right. He spends all of his time in in isolation fishing unless he's getting drunk with his dude and they're reading and discussing law, which there's probably not even that much discussion as there is reading. Right. So sure. this is a dude who keeps to himself. He's also not ambitious. Oftentimes, you know, uh, lawyers are, you know, portrayed as these very ambitious people trying to make a ton of money, make a name for themselves. Oh, you know, this is going to make me if I take this case. Right. And like he's to your point, just like very cool being a small time nobody taking cases for no money just because I eh, got nothing better to do. Right now, I will so say um, really quickly uh, that, again, this was based on a real person, John Volker, who mm-hmm. wrote this script or wrote the story rather the novel that it was based on, which was a uh, number one bestseller all over the place. Uh, This book crushed. Um, So John Volker was like, you know, a successful writer coming into this. And um, he also graduated to become uh, on the Michigan Supreme Court. So even though he was, you know, from the UP and was this small town fisherman dude, um, he did finally go, uh, I guess, get his shit together (laughs) because he's writing books (laughs) and up in the, you know, Supreme Court and all of that too. So... Uh, sure, real life yeah. guy, real life Jimmy Stewart, you know, he's got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And so, I mean, speaking of, you know, real life uh, legal people, you know, we've also got uh, Joseph Welch as Judge Weaver. And that wasn't sure. something that necessarily meant much to me until I went back and looked into it and saw that he was very famous for being a lawyer during the McCarthy trials and one who sort of like specifically had a moment where he called out. McCarthy is the have you have you no sense of decency, sir? It's it's that guy, Mm -hmm. you know, and so that was sort of seen as like a watershed moment in the McCarthy trials, wherein like sort of overnight everybody turned on Senator McCarthy. And again, Joseph Welch was pretty much the person largely responsible for popularizing the sentiment. And you can tell that he's not a professional actor, but it also doesn't really seem to matter. Right. Like there's something about the judge character being so sort of like (laughs) aloof and laid back and low key relative to all of these like theatrical Titans that we're talking about. Right. So even though there are elements, especially contrasted to the acting styles of these, you know, very storied professional actors, you know, it almost feels a little improvisational, so to speak. Right. Like when you have a comedian sort of come on and do an acting role, but it very much works for this. And I think that in a film where, everybody's performances are so intense and everybody is an intense character. It helps to have the judge be a little bit lighter to sort of counterbalance some of that weight along with the score. You know, he's probably doing a lot of that work. He's hilarious at times too. Cause like his introduction, as he comes out into the courtroom and lays out the ground rules, (laughs) straight up lets people know, like I'm prone to fall asleep every now and then, but I'm cool. Just shake me. You know, everything will be yeah. <laughs> like, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but that's think pretty about much. It. Just give me a little nudge and I'll be right back up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, every time they go to the chambers, he's smoking his pipe, you know, he's like, one of these days I'm going to get in trouble for this. I'm just going to light up in the fucking uh, courtroom. So yeah, we love the judge. It's unfortunate. Um, I looked it up. Apparently he passed away the year after this was released. So 
Um, this was his first and last performance, if I'm not mistaken. So there's another performance that kind of stands out, and that's George C. Scott, right? You you touched on it earlier. He's the AG Claude dancer and just has this tremendously commanding presence, right? He's a very intimidating man. He's a very intelligent man. So he's even like constantly overshadowing the uh, the actual prosecuting attorney who is uh, actually in real life. I forget the gentleman's name at this point, but in, he's actually Eve Arden's real life husband who played yeah. his assistant. Uh, Paul's right. assistant, that is so. Yeah. And yeah, George uh, C. Scott comes in from Lansing, Michigan. And then um, and then her husband that you're mentioning is uh, he's like the local guy. So he brings in the big guns from the big city of Lansing, you know. So that's George yeah. C. Scott's character. Yeah, definitely. And one thing and one person I think has like the sort of sneakiest good performance is Lee Remick. I think that she does a very good job of just being untrustworthy the entire time, but in a way where you still sort of like her and root for her, or you're at least not actively rooting against her. You know, I think that a lot of people playing this role, you know, you'd be like, ah, you know, she's no good. She's clearly messing with everyone. Sure. Because, I mean, look, let's let's be completely honest. You know, this this guy, Fred, is is on trial for murder. He admits it, by the way. It's never, you know, this is not a trial of innocence of did he murder this man or not, Uh, which is, you know, usually the procedural that we're used to seeing from a movie like this is did he do it? Um, He did it. It's it's he admits it like in moment one, we're introduced to baby Ben Gazzara in prison. And he's like, yeah, fucking shot him dead. He raped my wife. Like, yeah, what are we going to do about that? And then, you know, that the rest of the movie ensues and and we find out what we're going to do about that. But um, but yeah, so, you know, it's a very strange structure because you mentioned you touched on this earlier. You know, it's not like um uh, dead set protagonist, antagonist, good versus evil. In fact, Jimmy Stewart even has a line in the film where he says something about, you know, you're you're approaching this as if it's good versus bad or, or good, good and evil, black and white. He's like, as a lawyer, um, you know, I'm familiar with the fact that people are all kinds of things. Again, I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah. you know, basically touching on the fact that we all exist in a daily uh, capacity in a gray area. You know, each one of us is doing both good and bad all the time. So it's not like, oh, he's a good person and he's a bad person. People don't categorize like that. And so and neither does this movie, um, which is, makes it so unique. Yeah, absolutely. And again, sort of getting back to Lee Remick's performance specifically, I think that it would be really easy to hate this character if it was played a certain way. Right. Because to my to my point from a second ago, there is absolutely a scenario where she slept with Barney 100 percent willingly. Right. And Mm -hmm. then came back. And rather than just fess up to the cheating to her husband, lied about it, resulting in his murder. So basically, right. there is there is there is a very realistic potential that she had this dude murdered rather than fess up to the fact that she willingly went and slept with him. Right. There's a and there's like, a that's there's a, a bad that person. You're a very bad person if you do that. I should hate right. you. And I don't. And that's what's so interesting about the Lee Remick performance is she's able to keep you on her side, even though, you know, that she's probably not a good person and very well could have had this dude killed in cold blood. There's a world we're living in where Fred uh, Ben Gazzara's character could have given her that black eye or or her. Absolutely. 100%, um, after yeah. he found out that, yep. um, you know, these things happened with her and the, the dude from the bar, the, the, the guy. So, um, yeah, it's 
but then you find out, well, again, well, we're getting way off track here, but we are hitting on some very important points. So, and, but, you know, when we progress the story a little bit more narratively, narratively and we talk about some of these future scenes, uh, we get to the bartender and, and you know, spoiler alert, uh, dude's daughter and all of this. Um, you know, it does kind of paint the picture a little better. But, yeah, this whole movie exists in a huge moral gray area. And I still yeah. don't know how I feel about it. You know, like who I'm <laughs> who I'm with um, other than lovable old Jimmy Stewart. So, um, you know, but if he was if he was played by a different actor, you know, you could ask yourself, would you have felt the same way about this movie if it wasn't, you know, good old Jimmy Stewart? You know, yeah, I don't know. that's kind of that's exactly my point from earlier. Like, so, you know, I, I we mentioned it on the show a lot, like that there's a difference between acting and characterization, right? Characterization mm -hmm. can come from the actor, but it can also be baked into the screenplay as a result of writers. Directors can bring those flourishes. Everybody can contribute to that. You know, so if you actually look at the character on paper, it is not the Jimmy Stewart that we know. Like, you right. don't read this and you're like. Paul is Jimmy Stewart, 100%. Like, no. Paul plays much more like a Michael Shannon type of guy, right? Or a Robert De Niro, like a, a, a brooding method actor type of sort, right? Who's very in his head. Not, you know, uh, like I said, America's favorite grandpa, right? But they cast <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. And that's what just... And just that casting lends that additional layer to the performance and to the protagonist because again sure. if you have a more traditional actor a more traditionally dramatic actor play this role even even ben gazzara was probably a better fit for that role on paper than jimmy mm -hmm. stewart right he very easily could have played the lawyer well um, because the lawyer is kind of like small town folksy making fish and lures just wants to be left alone. He's not like big city guy. But Jimmy Stewart is. But that's what I'm saying. Like the character, I don't know, like, like Paul the character is, very is based himself, on right? the guy, uh, John Volker, who was like that, too. So if it doesn't read that. like that, maybe that's a screenplay problem. I don't know. Well, no, but that's what I'm saying. Like Jimmy Stewart generally like isn't like. The guy who keeps to himself fishing and, you know, playing solitaire and, you know, sitting on his lazy okay. boy by himself. Sure. Right. Like that's going to be a, more of a grizzled brooding again. Like I think like Michael Shannon. Right. Like keeping to himself, like kind of grumpy. Right. Like brooding, all these sort of things. Like it's not like, yeah. well, hey there, folks, it's your, you know, it'd be like, be like, what if you like, we're like, oh, you know, it'd be perfect for this Don Knotts. Right. Oh, oh what's going <laughs> on with this? Uh, oh, anatomy of a murder. Whatever. Right. Like <laughs> that's basically you're yeah. one step removed from him at this point, casting Jimmy Stewart. And my understanding really? is that Jimmy Stewart actually took a lot of these roles playing against the type that he had become known for later in his career, like in into the 60s when cinema was changing and the whole studio system was breaking down and all of the independent films and stuff like that. Uh, apparently, uh, he stayed relevant by sort of taking on these types of morally ambiguous, you know, not just gee golly jilliker type of roles because those sure. were disappearing and, and film was changing and getting more serious. So uh, this is apparently uh, not my... the only type of role that he took on in the later stage of his career like this. I have in my notes, I don't want to hear Jimmy Stewart say panties. 
Um, so <laughs> to your point, you know, <laughs> yeah, he's definitely playing against type here. Cause he says it a lot and he's talking about sperm and like, you know, coming to completion and like all these things that made the film cutting edge it made the script, you know, controversial and edgy. I get it. But hearing Jimmy Stewart deliver it to me isn't necessarily what I had in mind. You know, like, I don't know. It was weird. This is- Okay, first of all, two things. First of all, I need to hear you do Jimmy Stewart talking sexy to a woman. Go. Well, Jason, um, every time a woman uh, takes off her panties, uh, an angel gets its wings. (laughs) By the way, the other number two of this is uh, I am a big stand-up comedy fan. I know you are. Did yes. you see the uh, d- during the 90s, they used to play this Dana Carvey special on Comedy Central like all the time? Oh, I'm very familiar did, like, with Dana the Carvey's chop broccoli, the chop and broccoli Jimmy Stewart piano bit impression. The- yeah. Oh, that's certainly a pleasurable sensation. <laughs> <laughs> right. He doesn't yeah, think it's I'm like Jimmy Stewart familiar. getting head in like a park or something. It's like, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> whoa. Well, did you touch it or maybe if you jiggle it a little? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, narratively speaking, we're back to the film. It's been several days since Laura's been seen and Paul goes and finds her. She's in this ruckus bar. She's dancing with this handsome military guy, drinking it up. You know, Paul confronts her. That's where she's sort of being very flirtatious and coming on to him. And that's where he's like, whoa, whoa, pump on the brakes, honey. Like, we're not doing this. Your husband's uh, on trial for murder. And, you know, I'm a guy who gets job done. So, you know, let's knock this off and let's get back to it. Even though at the end of the day, there's an obvious attraction. And beyond that, there is a good chemistry between the two as far as, you know, acting and an actor and actress is concerned. Uh, Everybody, everybody in this film, for example, has a very solid chemistry, whatever they're supposed to be to one another. They are that thing to one another. Yeah, I think that's really well done. So, we have the next day where the trial actually starts. That's when we're introduced to the Judge Weaver character. And the rest of the film, to your point from from a while ago, it's entirely in the courtroom. So probably yeah. close to an hour has maybe passed. And for the next hour and 40 minutes, 45, we're in the courtroom and we're never leaving. We're in this one place. And so for these 90 minutes to just move along the way that they do is a testament to the overall filmmaking skill. It's a testament to... Otto Preminger's sense of pacing. The other interesting thing about it is that it doesn't move artificially, right? Oftentimes, a filmmaker will need to use a lot of editing to speed the pace up or sort of, you know, cut past a lot of narrative exposition and and dialogue-based exposition. And he doesn't do that, Preminger. He lets all of that speak. And as a matter of fact, he had a very interesting view of edits where he actually went on record as saying that he believes every edit in a film interrupts the viewing process. And so as a result of that, he went out of his way to use as few edits as possible. And so we'll notice that there's a lot of longer takes, two, three, four, five minute takes, camera Mm -hmm. movement, dolly shots, things like that. That's a a direct result of Otto Preminger's disposition towards not necessarily approving of edits as, you know, interrupting your processing of what's going on. So we see a lot of those longer takes. And generally speaking, when you have longer uninterrupted takes, it's actually the opposite, right? Uh, Those can feel very long if we haven't had an edit in two, three, four minutes, you know? And so sometimes, you know, you have a 90 minute film 
that's a series of, you know, four to seven minute takes. And that could feel like three hours just in and of itself, because there is mm-hmm. something about the edit that does sort of move along. And it's like a little reset, I think, for our brain. Right. I think it's the same concept. Why can we watch five one hour episodes of television in a row, but we can't watch one four hour movie, you know, back to back. It's because your brain gets those little moments, those reset moments, right? Even if you stay seated, when the credits are rolling, your mind's taking a break from what's going on. You're thinking about something, check your phone real quick. Even just those 30 second break, you know, your brain can take advantage of that. So all of that to say that it really just makes the pacing that much more impressive to then stack on top of that, these really long shots and sequences. Sure. It's like uh, it's like listening to fish, you know, (laughs) it's like you get this big, long 25 minute song. It's like I could listen to five, five minute songs. No bigs. You give me that 25 minute song. It's like, is this still going? Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They're really working that scale there, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So. Now we have the Paul Beegler character. He's beginning to plead his case, right? He's objected to at every turn by the DA Mitch Lodwick, who's played by Brooks West. That's uh, Miss Arden's husband, as well as the uh, dancer character played by George C. Scott. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, we see both sides sort of sparring together and the judges pace it. But he's also sort of constantly dismayed by what's going on. And, you know, Paul hasn't even made his defense, you know, 20 or 30 minutes into it. Right. And mm-hmm. we don't even know right off the bat that the defense is actually going to play this defense of irresistible impulse slash temporary insanity yet. Right. It's not made clear up front. It's something that has to be introduced as part of the defense in a very organic way. And this gets back to what we were talking about, where, you know, this is a film about the lawyers and them constructing a case and the way that a case needs to be prosecuted and defended and the subtle ways that you have to manipulate juries and people and information and when you do and don't introduce it and how much you do and don't let on and all of these things. And so that's sort of what we're seeing sort of organically take place over the course of these first like 20 or 30 minutes in this courtroom. It's also introduced to us as the audience, uh, uh, as an aside, that Beagler, um, Jimmy Stewart's uh, partner, McCarthy, has gone off away. He borrowed the car. He doesn't have a license and he's just gone away. And the secretary won't reveal where he's gone. We just know that he's off on this little side quest. So so he's (laughs) off doing some shit that will actually have a big payoff at the end as well. We'll get to that in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So we see Laura take the stand and, you know, dancers trying to paint this picture of her as this sort of very promiscuous and, you know, flirtatious sort of person may have even engaged in some consensual intercourse with Barry. Right. The she old not, um, he gets into the old what was she wearing defense that we yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. are still dealing with. Oh, to this she was day, looking you know? pretty suggestive. And oh, I think right. you know, she sure was swinging her hips every time she made a pinball score there. Right. Yeah. Right. I also love the friendly. way that. Yeah. I also love the way her that shoes like, off. Paul, <laughs> ends up flipping on that. It's, I, I believe this comes much later. Uh, I believe it's with the bartender um, yeah. kind of towards the end of this whole sequence. But uh, yeah, you know, he she he's trying to basically make that case against her. And then uh, Paul's like, so, you know, was there a lot of dudes around her? And she was like, no, no, not really. I was like, OK, you know, we're a lot of dudes pointing and talking about her. And he's like, no. So I was like, so really, it was just you and Barney that were paying a lot yeah. of attention to her. Right. Yeah. So, you know, maybe this right. is a you guys thing and not a her thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bartender, by the way, played by Murray Hamilton. Did you see that? Mar- Murray no. Hamilton. 
the fucking uh, mayor of Amityville in Jaws. <laughs> That's great, dude. Yeah, no, as you say it, it's like, yeah, you can totally see it. Got a little bit yeah. of a Ryan O'Neill look to him. But uh, yeah, a little maybe bit. Minus the maybe Murray Hamilton. I, I mean, <laughs> I've only really known him as that. So uh, yeah. Jaws guy. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Now, you know, one thing that we've sort of touched on, but we haven't really got into great detail about is sort of the the camera work and the cinematography overall, you know, and with along that sort of like the blocking and the shot composition and lighting, you know, I found all of this very phenomenal. I think it's a strong reason for the, for the film's success for a lot of the reasons that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was it something that stood out to you as you were watching? Did it call attention to itself at the time? No. Or is that something that you didn't really realize until you like went back and looked at it afterward? Correct. It's, it's so good. You don't notice it. It's so smooth because to your point, you are in that courtroom a lot. I think the only time you leave in acts two and three really is to go to the bar, um, to go meet with, uh, the woman and the bartender to go get more evidence, parse things together. But, um, yeah, the blocking, the way the camera is revolving around the reverse and, and, uh, you know, first shots and so forth. Um, it's so buttery smooth. You don't even notice it. It's just happening yeah, and you're along for the ride. Um, you get a lot of long takes, but none of it is so look at me, you know, we're not like, you know, going around through the jury box and going behind head. It's not gratuitous. It's so, yeah. you know, uh, you know, just very, very subtle, very subtle. Um, but, but amazing. Um, and the lighting is you know, pretty cut and dry. I don't think he did a whole lot with lighting as far as like the noir, you know, uh, Maltese Falcon kind of, correct. Yeah. you know, Casablanca style lighting. It's all very, you know, he's in a courtroom in upper, uh, the UP, upper peninsula of Michigan. So it's all kind of, you know, I won't say it's flat, but it's not like super dynamic and high contrasty either. Um, but you don't want it to be. You don't want any of these things to be because this is an yeah. actor's show. Like this is all on the performances of you want people to be focusing on the intensity between Georgie e. Scott, uh, you know, Jamie Stewart, Ben Gazzara, all the Lee Remick and all these uh, people and trying to just suss it out in your head, the the good and evil of it all. And you're in the throes of this, uh, you know, existing in this gray area. Um, so I don't think you would want, um, the, the cinematography to call attention to itself. It would pull you out of the movie, um, at a time when you should not be, um, but it's very, very good. Yeah. And my understanding is that with black and white photography specifically, this is actually kind of more impressive than it might otherwise sort of seem right. Like, because black and white, my understanding, like that's why you see a lot of noir films have really harsh, high contrast lighting is because black and white photography naturally lends itself to contrast. But getting a nice, even picture that doesn't feel flat to your point from earlier, mm-hmm. um, there, there, there's definitely a certain skill in doing that, you know, so. Sure. Um, Especially when you're moving the that, camera around so much. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that they were able, I would have to imagine they lit practically sort of in like, you know, a Conrad Hall type of scenario where, you know, the set was that. lit or the location was lit and they were able to just move around as they would instead of like, mm-hmm. oh, let's set up for this shot. Let's set up for this shot. Let's set up for this shot. And I would right. imagine per- that, you know, works well for Preminger, who's got a very naturalistic style, right? He's going to want to he's going to want it to feel like a documentary, which it does. It feels kind of like a polished documentary. To your point, the move- camera movements are there, but they're subtle. You know, it's not this Michael Bay whipping through, you know, or even, you know, a, a more pronounced but still reserved Paul Thomas Anderson push in shot, you know, sure. which feels good and elegant, but is still calls attention to the fact that this is a camera shot. Right. 
Right. So, like I would have expected in a modern in a modern film like this, I would have expected like a, a dolly, a Dana dolly shot going through the jury box, going like an over the shoulder as it goes behind the front row of the jurors, kind of giving you um, a juror's perspective from the jury box looking into this, but like going behind all the heads, maybe yeah. seeing them interact with certain things or, you know, someone giving a cough off to the side. I don't know. But regardless, yeah. I, you know, there was nothing dynamic like that at all. It was more like a really, really good stage play, you know, just a very mm-hmm. dynamically shot uh, performance driven uh, piece, especially yeah. in these late moments of the film. Definitely. Yeah. And it was photographed by a gentleman named Samuel Leavitt, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. Consistently working cinematographer for about 20 years. He was Preminger's guy. He shot most, if not all of his work during uh, the period that he was active. The big film that launched him was he shot uh, Star is Born. It was like the fourth film that he ever shot. Okay. And after that, it's really not a lot of storied films. He stays working, but he doesn't really make a lot of films that like resonate, you know, culturally or, you know, Mm -hmm. are remembered through time. As a matter of fact, he wins a film for uh, he wins an Oscar for a film that I've never heard of until looking into this called The Defiant Ones, which was actually a uh, Hollywood action adventure with Sidney Poitier and Paul Newman, I believe. Okay. Uh, and then later in his career, he goes out. I think it's like his fourth or fifth to last film. He shoots uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with Sidney Poitier as well. So, Got it. Yeah. So uh, definitely interested to see more of his Spoiler work. alert, it's Sidney Poitier that's coming to dinner. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's coming to is dinner. He, is, he, is he a fine, upstanding Caucasian gentleman, Ryan? No, he's not. <laughs> what? Spoiler alert. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. Sydney Poitier. But also, um, you know, we that, that movie yeah. was a watershed moment and did do a lot of things for those, you know. Um so right. props to that. Also, just as yeah. a personal note for anybody out here in the Los Angeles area, uh the uh photographer is from Woodland Hills. So local oh, guy cool. out here. Yeah. Well, and, and what's his name? Samuel Leavitt is the guy's name. Samuel Leavitt. Yeah. All right. Love it or leave oh. it. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, and and so one of the interesting. Things I hope that's about on his business card. That's Samuel <laughs> Leavitt. Love it or leave it. I say, <laughs> <laughs> you call me if you will, and leave me alone if you don't. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think that also one of the reasons that it's shot this way and it does let it speak for himself is Preminger was big on this idea that like when we do a close up on an actor during an emotional moment. We're telling the audience exactly what to look at. And that's true. And, you know, I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that, but it's a unique viewpoint that we don't necessarily want to do that all the time as filmmakers. So he would instruct the uh, the framing such that there was never just like one thing in frame. Right. If we do have right. a close up, uh, if we do have a single rather. It's going to be in a in a wide or a medium wide. So we're going to see more of the environment around them, maybe some people in the background. But generally speaking, you know, instead of just going shot reverse shot with close up, he's going to go shot reverse uh, shot with like a medium wide. And then he's going right. to put the other person that he's talking to there. And then he's going to put somebody else in the background. We even have that great sequence. Oh, where, I, I know exactly what you you're know, getting exactly, to, right? buddy. Where Laura's being interviewed and uh, Claude Dancer is like trying to block her view of making eye contact with Paul right. to sort of like trigger whether she should say yes or no or what she should do. And so then like Paul will like move <laughs> over so that he can see behind his shoulder and then Claude yes. moves back to like block him and do this. And it's this like very just Jimmy lovely Stewart, synchronization. Like, poke out from behind George C. Yeah, Scott just, like, and coming off to the other side. Oh, I love it. <laughs> like they, they love might as well have had those cartoon sound effects. Like, yeah. 
<laughs> right? Like, <laughs> and uh, so by the way, that that is something I did notice, and it was at this very scene that I noticed it is that there are no close ups really or singles. Yeah. Everything is group shots. And I noticed it when I when I saw Jimmy Stewart poke because I didn't know they were going to make a thing of it. And he was going to have like a monologue about it and saying he's trying to block my view and blah, blah, blah. So yeah. I thought it was just it was something just like that was done for me. Kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And so, um, yeah, I noticed like, holy crap, like this whole thing is shot in wides with deep focus. Um, there's no shallow depth of field. Um, yeah. It's just like because like half of the magic isn't always in what um, Jimmy Stewart is saying. It's what it's watching George C. Scott's response to it or, um, you know, Correct, yeah. watching George C. Scott with the dog on his lap, all awkward and stuff like that. And then having <laughs> Jimmy Stewart make some quips about it, you know, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But it's this interaction. It's the chemistry of the 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 cast that is the glue of this film to me, not necessarily yeah. like one star performance. You know what I mean? Correct. Yeah. No. Definitely. It's it's an ensemble performance. Like we we speak because even you know, when you crushes. have close ups on the uh, witness box or whatever it's called up there uh, by the you know where the witness goes, <laughs> and um, so you know you'll have he'll he shot it in such a way almost like on a forty five. So you'd have the judge, um, you know, behind him responding. Mm-hmm. You'd have George C. Scott or Jimmy Stewart. Uh, on the left side of frame questioning. So it would always be like a three shot. And um, at the, I think, you know, every now and then you might have a single on the witness. If, if they were saying something really emotional uh, like Lee Remick or something like that was giving some substantiating thing. But um, anyway, yeah, I thought that uh, uh, it was, it was very subtle, but, um, but yeah, it was very weird that it was shot in all whites. Yeah. And, you know, I, I touched earlier that it wouldn't be the only time that we make a sweet smell of success reference and specifically with the camera work and the direction regarding mm-hmm. the camera work. That's to me what most felt like this, uh, yes. like this film, you know, and it's because I believe that. that Preminger and Alexander McKendrick, who made sweet smell of success, had a similar outlook with regards to edits. Right. Like we talked we, we reviewed sweet smell of success on the audio podcast uh, we'll go ahead and link to it here if you want to check it out right now. But um, that's something where he had a similar outlook where he wanted these really long takes, right? We talked about how there would be certain sequences in Sweet Smell where there would be, it would be like a five minute take and there would be something like 30 different marks that the uh, that the actors had to hit over the course of this sequence and the camera tracking along with all of that. And so you sure. see a lot of that here where it is it is subtle in the way that it's done and then you you take a look at it on the back end, and you're like, oh, wow, that was I didn't realize that was a five minute take with this many camera movements and the actors moving 30 different times, hitting 30 different marks and all of that. And so very similar to what McKendrick and James Wong, Howe, the cinematographer did in Sweet Smell of Success. We see a lot of that mm-hmm. here in Anatomy of a Murder as well. I had not thought about that. That's a great comparison. Yeah. Now, narratively speaking, we've got testimony given from the two psychologists. By the way, I understand we're kind of skipping around a little bit here at the end. It's 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 really just it's an hour and a half of different witnesses and people coming up and going. Right. So rather than just be like this guy comes up here and then sits down and this guy comes up here and sits down rather that would get boring very quickly. So we're just going to kind of go through this in a sort of high level um Manner, But there are a couple very important people along the way, like Mary and the bartender that we're calling out and such. So um, so to that point, Ryan, if there is anything that I gloss over that you want to specifically call out, feel free to go ahead and do that. But we have the uh, 
like I said, it's it's testimony from two uh, psychologists. One is from the army, who is obviously going to be sort of the pro Fred guy, and then one is hired by the state, who is going to be the pro AG guy. And as we expect, the young guy says, "Oh yeah, you know, man, this Mannion guy, like 100% was suffering from uh, temporary insanity, irresistible impulse." The older guy's like, "I didn't see any any uh, claim of that whatsoever, right? Didn't see any evidence of that." Could very well be lying. And that's when sort of Dancer floats this idea that like Laura could very well have slept with Barry consensually. And there's even a moment that he references. So they talk about how when Laura came home and told Fred about the assault, that he actually asked her to pray on a rosary that what she was telling him was accurate and 100 percent true. And then when Mm -hmm. she did, he went and he murdered her. And so Dancer tries to introduce that as evidence of their sort of like fraught relationship, right? Like, hey, guys, I know they're presenting these two like they're this happy young couple who's super perfect and blah, blah, blah. But like there are some very serious questions and some very serious allegations that may or may not have been made here that may be true. And the funny thing about it, Ryan, is that's absolutely true. Like we as an audience, like know that's the case, you know, and I wanted to discuss that the state of that relationship between Laura and Fred, because so little is directly revealed about the fraught nature of their relationship. Like we learn absolutely nothing. Like we don't know if he hit her or not. You know, he even asks her if he ever beats his wife on on stage at one point, And he says no. And we know that's not true because they just had a conversation about him beating her up at one point. Right. So we know mm-hmm. that there's domestic abuse involved in this relationship. We know that she's promiscuous and flirtatious and very likely sleeps around behind his back. This is why he stays with her. She's a beautiful woman, but she's not faithful, drives him crazy. He's probably got a lot of his shit, too. And yet none of this is really expressed explicitly. It's all just these little moments, these little looks, these little... So, like, specifically, there's two moments between the two of them, between Laura and Fred, that the actors, Ben and Lee, introduce that are just great. And one is when Lee is leaving the stand and he's going to take it, and they just stop and they just look at each other and give give each other this look of, like, are we fucking each other over or not here? Right. Like you just, there, yeah. there's so much said and not said in that one look <laughs> that you could break down and probably do a whole special featurette on what that sure. means. And then beyond that, the most telling part is, is slightly thereafter where they're both going to smoke cigarettes and Lee has her, uh, or I'm sorry, Laura has her lighter out. She lights her cigarette. She goes to light Fred's. And he waits there for a minute and then like brushes aside and like grabs his own lighter and like lights, lights his, his own, own cigarette. cigarette. I noticed right? that. Yeah. 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 So like this is a fucked up like these people have a very fucked up relationship, right? Like they love each other and hate each other. And if they and if they love each other, I they probably don't like each other very much at this point. Right. Um, but at the same time, they're in cahoots. They probably have the same hangups, um, all this sort of stuff. Right. By the end, they'll run off together and possibly into the sunset. Right. After they win this thing together. But you even get the sense that they're just going to go right back to to cheating and drinking and beating up on each That's other. That's what I right? was thinking. Yeah. Nothing was remedied with this whole thing. No. Yeah. And so, again, so it's this very interesting. But that's thing our legal like, system. Hey. But like we, but yeah. But from a characterization standpoint, we know they're not who they say they are. 
Paul, who's the protagonist, who we like, knows that they're not say they are. And despite that, is doing everything in his power to get them off. And to me, that just colors this movie in such an interesting way where you know that, like, there's something about these two and they're not 100% innocent and they're probably even very guilty. And yet I'm still not rooting against them. How do they pull that off? It's amazing. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily rooting for them either. Either. No, I think that's the thing. Like, they're just they're very complicated, you know, like yeah, so many the whole movie's complicated. Nobody's I don't know that I was rooting or bad. It's like I I, don't, I wasn't rooting for anybody, even in yeah. the end when they got off. Um, I did not feel relieved by that or vindicated that we uh, with the exception that, that I just inherently likes Jimmy Stewart. But yeah, this this was just a fly on the wall procedural. This wasn't a good or bad. Oh, I hope, you know, they stick it to him and blah, blah, blah. Because at the end of the day, um, George C. Scott was right about a lot of stuff. And so, yeah, you know, it's not about who's right or wrong. It's about what you can prove in court. You know, who's going to be the better lawyer? It's what we said up top. It's about the case. This is this is a movie told through a lawyer's point of view. They honestly do not. It's I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Same thing. Right. They're like. Don't care if you killed him or not. It's my job to get you off. That's the only thing I'm here for. Or it's my job right. to put you in jail. That's the only thing I'm here for. Don't give a shit about you as a person and what you did. And the, one of the main reasons they got off was that uh, precedent that Homeboy found um, in the Supreme Court case trials in some mm-hmm. book from 18 Dickety Six. Um, that was like fucking literally a hundred years ago. They found some small court case where, you know, they were able to prove that. Uh, you know, you could do this if you had the right motivations. You know, yeah, it was called uh, the irresistible do- impulse was the specific mm-hmm. word that they Thank used. You. And the Michigan yeah. Supreme Court set, had a precedence where a case prior to that, a person, it was determined that if a man killed another man in a state of irresistible impulse, the state would not hold him accountable. Right. So then all they had to do was prove the impulse, which would have been Correct, yeah. you know, triggered by the rape. So mm-hmm. if the rape happened then that could have very easily triggered the irresistible impulse or whatever um, from Ben Gazzara's character, Fred. And then he was, you know, and then that paired with the temporary insanity plea um, got him off scot-free. And so, uh, and it worked, but I don't feel good about that. He still admits to murdering a man in cold blood, you know, and it's like, it's also one of those moral quandaries. Like you're a married man, Jason, if somebody did this, and, you know, and this happened to you, um, you know, I, I would feel very if it happened to me, I would feel very justified um, going to take actions into my own hands. And I would probably black out and, you know, could be I could see a situation where this could happen to somebody, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, if it did indeed happen. But that's the thing is, is at least for me, at no point do I think that actually happened that way. Right. What, that she got raped? Yeah. Or, or if um, she or if she did that, like, like, honestly, my, my personal opinion, I do not believe she was raped. I, be, I, I believe the scenario that I brought up earlier. I believe that she okay. probably did willingly sleep with Barney. Um, we've already you know, established what was she wearing defense. It, it's not it's not <laughs> that it's not that defense specifically. It's the fact that the film has already presented by nature of their relationship that yeah. she is a promiscuous woman. And it reinforces sure. this by the fact that she's 
dancing with the soldier. She's coming on to Paul. Let's let's be 100 percent clear. She does not. She doesn't not sleep with Paul because of her own decision making. Right. There is very much a scenario where if Paul's like, what's up, girl? She's like, just looking to bone. Let's go. Right. Like, and that happens. And yeah, I believe that there's about also that a scenario, though, that she's just super flirty, not getting the attention at home. Fred's neglectant and he's always at the you know, shooting range and off doing duty shit. Um, yeah. And uh, he already did tours in Korea. So, you know, th- th- maybe she's just neglected and wanting that attention just because a woman yeah. is seeking out certain kinds of attention or being flirtatious does not give a man license to come to fruition or whatever they were saying in the movie. Yeah, that didn't, no, of you know, course. Yeah. That's the whole, that's the whole point that. of so, the film. Right. And we, yeah. and, and we all agree with that. But the, the question that the film asks is, do you believe her or not? Right. Right. And if you believe her, then this entire thing, you know, it could be justified. Uh, and if not, then it's, you know, an act of cold blooded murder, essentially. And well, the film's the, not going to tell you whether it is or not. It's going to present the facts sure. and it's going to leave it up to you. And again, that's that whole objective nature. I do think within I do think within the confines of the trial that everything that happened like was was the correct interpretation of what happened. But really, mm-hmm. if you actually take a step back, what really because because Dancer is pretty much winning the entire time. What ends up yeah. being his downfall is that he makes a gambit on this Mary chick, not having right. information about her that ends up making him look foolish and immediately turns the jury against him. And that's funny because that's also very much reflective of the Paul Welch, uh, Joseph McCarthy situation where McCarthy had been building up a prosecution for a long time and then made the wrong gambit on this one particular young man who turned out to be innocent. Welch then called him out for that. And immediately overnight, public opinion turned against McCarthy. Wow. I did not know that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's parallels there, you know? So, and again, um, you know, do, do it like if, if, if I thought that she was just being flirtatious and never did anything beyond that, then of course, you know, it, it would be, it would be unacceptable. It's not, you know, she had it coming or something like that. That's ridiculous. But, yeah. um, you know, again, either, either she's just a lonely flirtatious woman who doesn't follow through on these things and just likes attention because she doesn't get it at home and is taken for granted of by a man who may or may not That's be my around on her and all of that. Or like she's legitimately somebody who sleeps around on this person. They probably very well could both sleep around on each other. I I just see them as one of those like almost like a modern day sort of like hillbilly white trash kind of couple. Just constantly fighting and fucking right. And like getting around on each other. But when it comes time, it's like, ah, well, we got to stick it out together. Right. Um, Again, I think I think he fucks around on her just as much as she does on him. I don't think it's a I think they're both toxic to one another. And because they're such talks and I think that they're such toxic people that they can they have to be with each other because the level of toxicity is so strong sure. that it would corrupt and pollute anybody else. Skip to uh, our next Ben Gazar experience in Buffalo 66. <laughs> <laughs> we see that, yeah. uh, you know, from old Vincent Gallo. Vincent yeah. Gallo wines. Just fuck you. That's why. <laughs> Link below. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the linchpin to this whole defense comes right about this time in the movie um, because we could spend hours discussing going back and forth. But 
old boy McCarthy has gone to Canada to go explore the nature of this woman who is running the bar. Uh, this man who was shot and killed uh, owns a bar. Um, it's now being run by Mary Pallant. We find out that she was like his manager. Um, he was an ex-fighter, this uh, a shootist and all of this. So who's this Mary Pallant character? She's very young, pretty mm-hmm. girl. And so um, old boy goes up to Canada and researches her backstory, finds out that she's the actual daughter of homeboy that owned the bar that got shot. Yeah. So. And she, um, she works fu- there at the bar and in. And she's and working there, now running the bar. Uh, she yeah. owns it or whatever. It was like willed to her. And so, because the, they had asked the bar, t- uh, Jimmy Stewart asked the bartender at some point earlier, um, the, the future mayor of Amityville, um, that's, um, you know, why aren't you, so is this your place now? He's like, no, nah, no, nah, I just, you know, I just work here. And uh, it's like, this is Mary Plant's place, blah, blah, blah. So um, now that we get her on this uh, stand and, or she yeah. volunteers, she, uh, uh, if she I, gets if invited I this, just to come. Go yeah, ahead. Just real, real quick. I do just want to give this, this uh, for anybody who didn't see the movie, who's still here, or maybe you saw it and it didn't quite 100%. The whole thing about Mary is people don't know that Mary is Quill's daughter, right? This comes right. as a big reveal later. The reason yes. that they don't know and the reason this is kept is because she was actually born out of wedlock. Okay. He had an affair mm-hmm. with someone. And so she's his daughter, but this is 1959 where, you know, such matters are much more scandalous and not accepted. So she has kept her relationship to Barry Quill hidden. So mm-hmm. when Barry dies and she inherits everything, the sort of commonly accepted scenario is that the two of them were involved in a relationship, a romantic she relationship. She was his mistress. Correct. Exactly. And she was having an, and he was having an affair with her because they couldn't come out and say that she was his daughter. And what other reason is there that he would leave everything to her? Right. right? So that's right. where all of that comes from. And that's what sets up the misplaced gambit on the usually intelligent and on the ball Claude dancer. Right. He right. doesn't have that information. So he's assuming the because same she thing. She says everybody that she else found um, point. Lee Remick's panties in the laundry chute. Correct. And, Cause yes. that was the whole thing at the whole, for the whole movie. Um, the reason why I they have to hear Jimmy panties, Stewart yeah. say panties 47 times is because they're <laughs> looking for them. Cause apparently they were torn off in the throes of passion slash rape and thrown out the window or discarded somewhere and no one could find them. So they found everything else. They found her sunglasses case. They found her dog. Uh, they found everything. By the way, we haven't even talked about the dog. That dog rips <laughs> shit. Put on the flashlight, drinks beer in the yeah. afternoon. Good like boy. no one's business. Did you pour a little for homie? Yeah. For, beer for the dog? Absolutely. Lunch beers. So, yeah. <laughs> Whiskey for my men. Beer for my horses. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they find that she finds the panties and so she volunteers to go up on the stand now realizing, oh, I think I actually have some, you know, some information that you guys would probably want to hear. Um, she's apprehensive because she doesn't want it to come out, like you said, that she was uh, in this not accepted um, patrimony or whatever you want to call it. Her dad was out of wedlock. So, um, yeah. And then you get this. Uh, loggerheads of George C. Scott thinking he's just got her and he's going to turn mm-hmm. the screws and he's going to be like, oh, yeah, you, you know, so now you think this, you know, and kind of drilling her, getting her to admit that they were having an affair. And he, he uh, man, I mean, were you like in it in that moment or were you kind of just like, because I was I was locked in. George C. Scott is magnetic in these moments. Yeah, like, definitely. 
he was yelling and he looked so fierce and mean. And I was like, and he's like right up in her grill. I was like, oh shit. And he's like, well, you know, tell me what, you know, what was your relationship with blah, blah, blah. And then she pauses and she was like, you know, I'm, I was, I'm his daughter, you know, or, you know, weren't you sleeping with her, him or something very accusatory. And, uh, I was like, oh shit. Like <laughs> mic drop moment, dude. I loved it so much. Oh, yeah. so much. I did. Well, and right it, before that too, because we, uh, that's where we have the moment where we're not really sure if he's going to be exposed or not Fred that is right because they have the surprise witness and it's the guy who's yeah. in jail next to him and he's basically like oh yeah I heard him say that uh oh, right. he fooled the judge and he fooled the lawyer and he's gonna get off scot-free and like that's the one time where we get this very sort of explosive outburst of like you're a you're a stinking liar right like the, right and and the funny thing the funny thing is it's those moments that I think actually do reveal that this guy is is he probably did do that right sure. like even though right Paul discredits him i was wondering that also yeah exactly and 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 that's this is the interesting thing that behind the characterization which is that like fred never responds that way to anything right like whatever mm-hmm. you say fred's got a story for it right and he's just gonna blow it off and all of this so Smooth for him talker. to have such an emotional reaction I was like, right. oh, that's absolutely true. Like, yeah, he, he, you know, he he's afraid that, you know, his cover was just blown or whatever. And he just had this emotional outburst the one time where, you know, he wasn't able to keep it together because, you know, there's the probably truth time. to that statement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we saw the wolf in sheep's clothing for just a brief second. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're you know? right. Yeah. I'll and give so you I, that. Yeah. So I that's the why, same thing. Yeah. So that's and that's what I think this movie does is I think it's like, here's what everyone's saying. But then. Here's some little clues that tell you that, like, it's not actually right. that, right? You know, right. so, yeah. But we do see that uh, Paul is able to discredit the gentleman before Mary ends up taking the stand. And, um, you know, uh, this is where Laura takes the stand, says Quill tore off her underwear, but it was never found. And then that's when Mary is like, oh, shit, I actually remember seeing those underwear. Because up until this point, you have to... Uh, remember, so like when we get the moment where they go to visit, they actually go to visit. It's like the one reprieve we get from the courtroom for a moment where they go to visit Mary at her place of business because mm-hmm. they're trying to get Al Packett, who was the bartender, who was the, the who actually witnessed the crime to uh, provide testimony. And he won't. And they kind of feel like it's out of some sort of like misplaced allegiance or loyalty to Barney. Right. And Mm -hmm. she also disallows it. So when you sort of reverse engineer that, like this guy is coming and basically saying, hey, I want you to let me interview this guy so that I can prove that your dad raped a woman. Why would she say that? At this point, she does not believe her dad to be anything but an upstanding good dude. And so she just shuts him off like, no, you're not going to do that. It's when the whole thing about the panties not being found are revealed. Then she remembers, oh shit, I saw those panties. They were in the laundry room and, you know, there's a laundry chute directly next to who is now revealed as my father's room. Like there's mm-hmm. a very real scenario where he did this. And so then that's what prompts her to come forward. Right. And so, you and, know, and then, by the way, pull out the 
largest pair of panties I have ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. Those are parachute pants, MC Hammer style, circa 1991 <laughs> panties. These things are ginormous. So the whole time it's like, ooh, she's so sexy and like da da da. And then all of a sudden it's like, these are my panties. And it's like, everyone's like, <gasps> and then he's just like granny panties. And I'm like, holy <laughs> shit, those are pantaloons. <laughs> Maybe it's like a uh, horses don't look like horses on film. So you got to paint cows thing. It's like, <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, appropriate size panties look like children's panties. So you got to use giant panties so they look like regular person panties. I'm here to tell you that they didn't hold up well. <laughs> or or also possible uh, too sexy for 1959. Yeah. What do they need to like pull I, out a thong and they're like, no, no, no. Granny panties or get the hell back off. Then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think those existed back then, but um, yeah, it was, <laughs> so, yeah, it was just so. very funny because the whole time she was proposing, you know, proposed as this very sultry woman of the night kind of person. And then it's like, yeah. these are her underwear. It's these giant, <laughs> you know, white JC Penny catalog, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, you know, narratively, this is where we have Mary on the stand uh, dancers, you know, think he's got her dead to rights. He's going to prove that, you know, she was sleeping and having an affair with him. It's going to bust the case wide open for everybody. And then she reveals the information that no, Barry was in fact her father. And yep. because of that, you know, instantly the, uh, the, the wins over everybody kind of just like I was saying about like, you know, overnight, it's very similar to the uh, McCarthy trial there. So with the trial over, you know, everybody goes back home for the night. The jury's deliberating and we see uh, Paul Parnell and Maida go back to their home slash law office. And we do get a nice, you know, sort of little soliloquy about Parnell where he's talking about the importance of juries and, you know, wax and philosophical about the nature of justice and juries and how important they are and everything. And it's a nice little moment before we quickly return back to the courthouse uh, where we learn that Fred is quickly proclaimed not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. I also think it's, again, a very hilarious touch and says so much about the characters that while they're reading this uh, jury verdict, uh, Laura has already gone and gotten smashed and she's too <laughs> drunk to be in the courtroom. So she's like, right. I'm tipsy. I'm going to be waiting in the car. Uh, let me know what happens. Thanks. Right. Like, and again, it's He's like, don't you want to see what happens? She's like, ah, it'll be yeah, fine. I'll be like, in the car. I don't care. And, you know, again, it's these moments that color my particular uh you know, interpretation of who she is as a sure. person. Uh, right. Again, they're ambiguous. They can be looked at, you know, many different ways, but again, she's not sticking around either way. And, you know, uh, they, they being Paul and Parnell go to visit Fred and Laura at the trailer the next day. They're going to go collect their fee. And, you know, as they show up to their trailer, uh, there's a note sitting in like a fire pit that basically says, uh, sorry uh, to leave you guys hanging like this. Uh, I was come over. I was overcome with an irresistible impulse to leave. Right. And they kind of <laughs> look at each other and smile clever. and, you know, drop the note in the fire pit as it burns away. And then we get those, you know, sort of like odd flute chirps uh that sort of like close out the film right in a sort yep. of unsettling sort of way and you know that sort of wraps up our experience with anatomy of a murder so there is a great film now ryan uh i but before we go ahead and wrap this up and get to the uh you know formally wrapping this up one of the things that i i wanted to ask you here real quick is i uh did ask you uh if uh to go ahead and uh we we watched the special feature on the on the criterion disc and it was called firing line did you did you catch that segment yes, yes. so 
one of the very interesting things about Preminger's disposition, and I kind of wanted to ask you what you thought, thought about this, is so Preminger was very much on record as saying he did not agree with the whole nature of censorship, right? 100 percent right. uh, censorship is wrong. I, you know, I saw what happened in Nazi Germany when, you know, uh, people weren't allowed to speak, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, First Amendment, freedom of speech rights, most important thing, blah, 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 right? So, like, cool, that was his disposition. However, he also held a disposition that obscenity laws were good and were accurate. And so it was like, oh, you know. That was very confusing to me. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you is how do you how do you think that he sort of resolves this idea that, you know, if somebody says, hey, you can't show that in your movie, I'm going to cut it out in order for you to exhibit the film. That is wrong. But saying, hey, you can't have this in your movie. I'm not going to cut it out, but I'm going to let you show it and then arrest you for indecency or obscenity. Like, how do you resolve those two concepts with one another? I don't. I don't know what he was talking about because he was was saying that according to the law, censorship was when the government would stand in and not let it something be shown. Right. Isn't that wasn't that way. So it's like when when a governmental entity will step in and prevent art from being distributed or shown, then that's censorship. And he's against that. But then when they would go talk about obscenity, he was like, oh, well, there are laws against obscenity. If I go, that's true with New York Times. That's true with the local newspaper. That's yeah. true with this very show. If you go show some obscene stuff, then you'll be, you know, arrested for it. And everybody will be down there and they'll shut you down and all of that. And I was just thinking, like, didn't you just say the same thing kind of twice? Like, yeah. And I get he's a lawyer. So he's speaking in, like, very specific distinctions. I'm sure that there is a legal difference between the two in the sense of, but like, I, I think that it's a very fine line and he seems to make, treat it like it was very so cut and dry. Like this should yeah. be something so clear. And it wasn't so clear to me. I just feel like it's, there, there exists a huge gray area in the Venn diagram between making obscene things and censorship. Now, could you argue that censorship prevents you from making the thing in the first place, but obscenity uh, or, or, you know, uh, obscene content is when you put it out to the masses as if it was like, it's a misrepresentation of the thing. For example, um, adult films to say that you can't make Mm -hmm. adult films um, is censorship. But then to say that you can make adult films, you just can't show them at AMC um, theaters down the street um, uh, or the Lemley. Uh, sure. then that's that's obscenity. Like there's a place and time for that. Um, yeah. Censorship is when the government would step in and like stop you from doing something, but obscenity or like, but to, to, so that's the only distinction that I could make out of that because it was very yeah. confusing to me as well. And, and and I suppose I suppose when you put it that way, I, I can sort of appreciate that. I may not necessarily agree yeah. with it, but I can sort of at least see what you might, you know, what he might be talking about. It's the old parental guidance thing from two, like when Two Life Crew was big and NWA yeah, yeah, yeah. was big <laughs> and they had, and Tipper Gore took the stand and they had to create sure. the, um, the parental advisory sticker. Um, I'm old enough to remember these trying times. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Right. So, uh, you know, but censorship would say you can't make that. And that's what a lot of people were trying to say at that time is you can't yeah. make that. That's obscene. But uh, but the obscenity rule is like you can make it. You just have to like you can't sell it at Kmart, you know, like. Yeah. 
it's got to go back, you know, or have a sticker or have a special case or something like that. And I think this has been something that we've wrestled with as a, as a culture and society with art throughout all of the ages, you know, yeah, definitely. Um, it's like how artists, uh, you know, you find out how artists hide, uh, little statues of, uh, you know, or sculptures of monks with their dicks out or whatever, you know, in church monasteries, you know, yeah. and they're just like up in the corner <laughs> because they just wanted to like sneak something in there, you know, yeah. um, what was allowed and not allowed has been, you know, uh, and, and how it will affect society is something that, uh, you know, staunch conservatives have been wrestling with, uh, forever. And yeah. so, you know, uh, in society and, and how do we present, it's like, okay, you, you're free to make it, but what do we do with it then? If you're free to make sure. it, what are you making it for? You know, like you're, you're making it to put it out. Right. Or are you just going to like hide it away in your bedroom? Is this just for you? In which case that, you know, falls under fair and personal use. Um, but if you're going to put it out there, you know, what do we do with it? Where do you put it out there and how, and yeah. I want to know about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess but that was my take on that. Yeah, no, and that's interesting. Yeah. And I guess talking to you, I could, again, I maybe wouldn't agree with it, but I could, I guess I could see an argument where it's like, look, you know, the laws exist. Um, if somebody mm -hmm. wants to break the law and suffer the consequences for that, they should be allowed to, as opposed sure. to us saying you're, you're not allowed to break the law at all. Like maybe that's right. where he's coming from. Right. Like don't censor yeah. the man. Like, you know, if he does a thing and he needs to, you know, so is, you know, pay, pay his dues to society for it, you know, so be it. But just don't tell him that he can't do that. Maybe that that was right. where he was coming from. I suppose I could I see guess. that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So it seems like we had similar reactions where it's like that feels a little bit like. You know, talking out both sides of your mouth or having your cake and eating it, too. At but first, maybe, I did. Yeah. But maybe yeah. as we break it down a little bit, maybe this is more what he meant by that. I had to compare it again to, uh, you know, modern things. And for me, it was two live crew and NWA. You know, we went from, you know, Jim, Jimmy Stewart saying panties 47 times to two live crew singing, oh, me so horny, me love you long time. Mm. And um, having women on stage and all the because it was a full ass performance. Sure. No pun intended, but it totally was a full ass <laughs> performance with two live crew. And um, they were bringing women out there and doing sexual acts, blah, blah, blah. Um so, yeah, um, it, you know, the, w there was a moment in time where we had to have a a reset back in the late 80s, early 90s as well. And it's like, OK, let's say you do you can make this. What do we do with it um, and how do we prevent our kids from seeing it or have some control in the process and all of that? So, sure. yeah, you know. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Very good. Happy that I uh, happy that I brought that up and we could work through that. So. Yeah. Go don't just say you can't make it. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. can't ban that. Sure. Um, and here we are. I live in the so-so uh, uh, state of Florida. And, <laughs> um, you know, we're dealing with that same discussion right now over schools and children's books and sure. all these things. And it's um, uh, much less interesting. But because, uh, you know, I disagree with, a lot <laughs> with all that. But um, yeah, but, but they're still having those discussions. And so, you yeah. Know, History yeah. repeats itself where we will always deal with this. We will always deal with this. Exactly. 100%. We're going to go ahead and give this movie a formal rating here. But first would like to remind you, if you haven't yet, go ahead and like this video, please subscribe to our channel. And as well, if you have anything to say about this movie at all, about our review up to this point, agree, disagree with what we have to say, want to, you know, shed some color on some questions. Maybe we asked, give your opinion. We would really love to hear from you. Please go ahead and drop those comments in the section below. Now, we do wrap up every 
episode of our long form episodes, that is, uh, with our three adjectives feature, right? And this is uh, just what it sounds like. It's a little feature where Ryan and I come up with uh, three reactions to the film, right? Three either words, phrases, sentences, etc. There's a lot of leeway on exactly how they look, but our uh, sort of three words or statements that summarize our response to the film. So Ryan, going to go ahead and let you take this first. What are your three adjectives you would say best describe your experience with Anatomy of a Murder? Well, my first one I'm taking some liberties with, but I went with Outback Steakhouse Dinner Bread. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had Outback Steakhouse Dinner Bread, but it's very unsuspecting. You're just thinking you're getting some bread. And then this like little warm log comes out and this little ramekin of butter on this wood carving board. And uh, but hot damn, that's like the best part of Outback Steakhouse to me is that warm freaking pumpernickel dinner bread, whatever it is. I don't know sure. what kind of bread it is. I'm going to say it's pumpernickel because it's brown. It is so delicious. And this movie um, was like, oh, it's a two hour and 40 minute legal procedural with blah, blah, blah. And like by Otto Preminger. And I'm thinking, and I look up that dude and he looks like a Bond villain. I'm like, oh God, here we go. So, <laughs> but dude, that, this movie ripped. Like yeah. it's the Outback Steakhouse dinner bread of legal procedurals. So yes, very unsuspectingly good. Um, loved it. Every bit of it. Uh, the next one is Kong versus Godzilla because I felt like, um, Jimmy Stewart's like King Kong yeah. and George C. Scott's like Godzilla. And they're just going head to head, these two Titans. And it's so much fun to watch. Um, and then my last one is, uh, sugar-coated medicine because, <laughs> uh, it does kind of like make you take the pill of what would you do and ask a lot of inward questions and all of that. Uh, but it sugarcoats it with a Duke Ellington scar and Jimmy Stewart <laughs> and panties. So, hey, and a little dog drinking beer. So it's sugarcoated medicine. How about you, nice. Jason? <laughs> Absolutely. Love those, man. Yeah. Uh, so uh, these ones, sometimes I'll do one word. Sometimes I'll do sentences. Went with the uh, sentence side of things right now. Uh, Going to try to bring a, a slightly different flavor to each one of these. So uh, my first one is a legal thriller in defense of American justice. Right. Uh, you know, it, this is a movie that, again, has a, a very profound respect for the American justice system and the way that prosecution and defense and liberties are granted to anybody committed of a crime. And again, this is in direct opposition to uh, his his experiences and his family's experiences uh, working for the state, prosecuting people alongside uh, Germany and Nazi Germany specifically. So being able to see some of those uh, atrocities and lack of justice be implemented uh, comes over mm -hmm. here, has a great respect for how we do things, wants to present that in the in the the framework of a film. Right. The second adjective I have is a literary adaptation in admiration of the written word. And this is something, Ryan, that we didn't really talk about, but. For as great as the script is in the screenplay, and you talked about the book from uh, the, the gentleman, the Supreme Court and all of that, the screenplay is really smart and does like not only a lot of work with regards to uh, questioning motives and presenting certain people. But one thing we didn't even talk about is like this film is actually very funny. And when you yes. talk about sort of like that lighthearted breeziness of the film, I think that's just as much a part of that as the Duke Ellington soundtrack and some of these other elements that we talked about is the fact that like, yeah. they're constantly making these little jokes and these little winks and nods and, um, you know, especially the outbursts uh, that, uh, 
Jimmy Stewart's character makes over the course of the film, right? Like, sure. uh, it, it, just these very sort of funny sayings and, you know, we even see the audience kind of respond to them in certain ways. And so even when they're in the judges chambers and they're talking about, well, we can't say panties. So what should we call them? And then they're yeah. like discussing amongst themselves. Like, well, I did hear uh, when I was in the war, I heard a French word and I was like, but I think it's too vulgar. And he's like, well, most French words are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all these little back and forth quips was very smooth. I liked it. Yeah, exactly. And then the last I have is a courtroom drama on the cool side of the pillow. Welcome to the cool side of the pillow. And that would be obviously the uh, Duke Ellington soundtrack doing a lot of work there. The sort of subtle camera work, not calling a lot of attention to itself. And just the overall, again, you know, like there is just sort of like that, you know, jazzy sense of cool that kind of like hangs over the entire proceedings, you know, in addition to just mm-hmm. the very sort of like traditional courtroom elements. So that's what I got here for my three adjectives. We are going to go ahead and wrap up with a formal star rating. I think I usually let you go first. So I'm going to take this one first, Ryan, and I will let you know that for anatomy of a murder, I am going four and three quarter stars out of five. Almost perfect All film. Right. I would watch this film again right now. Could do it. Which you say for a two hour, 40 minute film. Like, yeah. Love it very, very much. So how about you, sure. man? Formal star rating out I'm- of five. What you got? I'm giving this one four and a half uh, nice. for all the same reasons. Yep. The magic trick worked for me. Um, you know, I didn't. I, time just flew by. I had a great time. Uh, I don't know that I would watch this again right now because um, it is, you know, I, I know the, the plot now and the reveals and stuff. So um, but I would watch this again, hands down. Um, it's a very smart film. And uh, if somebody hadn't seen it and wanted to, I'd watch it with them in a heartbeat. So, yeah, four and a half stars. Awesome. Man. Real quick, before we get off topic, did you for once um, before we get to our, our next uh, bit in the, in the puzzle here, did you for once at, at all throughout this whole film ever uh, picture Jimmy Stewart as the lawyer chicken from Futurama? Because I did constantly. <laughs> he, he even has a line, Jimmy Stewart. And I wrote it down. He's like, well, now I don't understand uh, some of your concepts. I'm just a humble country lawyer. And I'm just yeah. thinking, like, I don't, I, I'm just a chicken. Uh, I don't know things like panties. And uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it could so be a perfect, direct uh, lift, right? Because he does say that. He's like, no, I'm just a humble chicken from the backwoods. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think that's what they're part of what they're parodying. Yeah, is, definitely. Uh, Jimmy that's Stewart hilarious. in this movie. Yeah, uh, I, I, I didn't, never knew I, that. I didn't think about that, but I'm absolutely going to now. So appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> well, I'm just a out. humble country lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a humble backwoods chicken from a nearby planet. <laughs> we don't now, have things like wives and murder. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> most of my friends were, that were murdered came breaded with a side piece. <laughs> biscuit. All right. Well, Anyways. before we leave, going to go ahead and look ahead to our next full-length review that we're going to pull from our master list. This the master, master list. list. Yes. You're probably asking what the hell's a master list. Master list is about 200 movies. It's not about. It's exactly 200 movies that comprise the list of films that we choose from at the end of all of our long-form episodes. So we do have our shorter-form 30- and 40-minute episodes that are a bit more high-level. And then we have these sort of two-hour deep dives that we're doing on our films, right? And these two-hour deep dives are like 
reflective of what we used to do on the podcast back when we were audio only. And that's really what we're interested in is really diving into the meat and potatoes and specifics of what creates our reactions to all of these films and all of the different aspects of filmmaking alongside that. Right. So what we've decided is that, uh, we're, because, you know, basically Ryan and I are indecisive bastards. And so it was like, well, we don't want to sit here into arguments over what film to look at. So, like, let's just go ahead and leave the process up to fate. So we have a master list that you can find on our website, esotericacinema.com, that has all 200 films that are on there. And we're going to go ahead and select right now a random number from the random number generator that we use at random.org. And that number is going to correspond to the next film that we do our deep dive review on. So, Ryan, as we select our random.org random number generator here, we click on it and find that we have got film number 170. Uh, so if you're on the website right now or you have the master list open, go ahead and go to film number 170. And we have a film that I have actually had on my radar for a long time. Uh, this is a foreign film, a European film, I believe, called The Square. And if I recall correctly, I think there's a chance this might be made by the same gentleman who made Triangle of Sadness recently. We'll find out in your description right here. Ruben Oslin's The Square from 2017, starring Elizabeth Moss. Uh, This is described as a prestigious Stockholm Museum's chief art curator finds himself in times of both professional and personal crisis as he attempts to set up a controversial new exhibit. I know nothing about this movie. I've never heard of this movie until right now. (laughs) Only I've heard of Ruben Oslin and Elizabeth Moss. So uh, anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing this and uh, learning more about it. Looks like it won a bunch of awards. Yeah, this is a really storied film, uh, kind of made Ruben Oslin's career. Um, this again, this is a film I know very little about. That's just one of those films that's like it's it's on a Thanks ton to of, uh, you know, secret movie club out here. You know, those type of revival houses show it all the time. Sure. And famously, you know, one of the things is like, you know, a lot of the American films obviously we're familiar with, but I don't have a big you know history with foreign films. So when we see something that's like, you know, highly regarded, I do my best to like not learn anything about it at all. That way we can just come to it with like a purely open mind. You know, sure. we don't really know if, it, you know, why it's celebrated or what's supposed to be good about it so we can just look at it through a purely objective lens so this is one that i've had on my radar for a long time really looking forward to checking this one out with you and uh seeing what this mr uh ruben osland is all about so hell yeah yeah so to everyone here who stuck around for this entire two-hour deep dive appreciate hanging out with you guys hopefully you had some fun with us I learned a little bit something about film as well as the specifics behind why we may, why you may or may not like Anatomy of a Murder. So for myself, Jason Peters, and my buddy Ryan Siebold, this has been Esoterica Cinema. Enjoy the movies.